he drives me to uh, the house of one of the a retired NBA Hall of Famer for a, a private PLO game. And it was straight out of Molly's game of the movies, like nothing I had ever seen. It, the felt is literally a picture of the guy's face with his championship trophy. Um, there's women running around in lingerie. Everybody's drinking like I've never seen it a game. I got stuck 150,000 at the 25K cap in about three hours. Hi, and welcome. It's Runchex, and you're listening to my podcast where I explore the topics around what it takes to become a great poker player with various interesting people from in and around poker industry. Today, my guest is Thalo, and we lift up the curtain on the high-stakes private game scene. Some of the stuff that we talk about might sound like it is straight out of the Hollywood movie, but I assure you, it is real life. Private games, poker apps, collusion, dubious ethics, angle shooting... These are just some of the topics that we discuss. Talo shares a lot of personal stories here. It's entertaining and it's instructional. And before we jump into it, I want to remind you that I am sending out a weekly newsletter where I share my key takeaways from each latest episode. Go to runchexpodcast.com and subscribe. And now, I hope you will enjoy this conversation. Thalo, welcome. Thank you. Great to be here. Yeah, we're really happy to have you on. Man, so many topics we're going to cover today. Uh, I don't even know where to start. Well, actually, I know where to start. Let's start with you. Uh, maybe let's let's hear a story of how you progressed in poker and became what you are, which is, I think, a pretty special story. Starting with me is, is great. We'll start from the, the least interesting subject and work our way up. All right. that, seems, that seems perfect. Um, yeah, I played poker recreationally, um, I guess, as a lot of people do since they were, they were a kid. My grandparents taught me when I was nine. I always found it interesting. Um, I played semi for income starting at about uh, 18 and thought maybe this is something I wanted to do. And then Black Friday hit and it was pretty hard to play for, for any real income. And at 18 years old, I switched over to getting a real estate license and dove into that industry um, for the better part of 10 years, uh, built up a, a little bit of a bankroll and then quit my job in, in January of last year to give poker a real shot. After playing recreationally um, for a lot of years, I had essentially only played as high as about two five um, live. And, you know, maybe if there was a fun five ten game and I had just made a big commission check, I would go play for fun, but certainly was a huge underdog. Um, and then at the start of last year, decided to, to try to give poker a real shot studied for about six months straight, um, eight to 12 hours a day of lab work, went to the biggest tournament we have in the Bay area, um, Bay one Oh one, uh, which is a thousand dollar buy-in battle of the Bay. Um, won that took that bankroll, went to Vegas for WSOP, um, started playing 5,100 PLO, which at the time, I think I was on a, probably a, th- a $300,000 bankroll. So I, I was trying not to do anything too, too ludicrous. Um, got crushed, went up in stakes, even from there somehow, and tried to find the hundred, 200 games. Um, got down to about 60,000 left within my first two weeks there, which is something I've been known to do. I'm a bit of a degen and we'll, we'll play way, way above my role. Um, took a shot with 60,000 left and put up 10,000 for the 10 K short deck. Uh, 
won that went and played in some of the private short deck games that I was able to get access to from the friends I made there, spun it up a little bit there, went and played in the 25 K PLO final table that for another 350, and then sort of spun up the rest of the summer, ended up winning 22 straight 5,100 PLO sessions at Bellagio at one point. Um, and just sort of took off from there. And, uh, now I play poker for a living. Wow, man, I, I don't even know where to start. Let's start with the, what many people would consider the boring part of this. But to me, that was, that was crazy. When you said six months, you studied eight to 12 hours. Um, yeah, I mean, I certainly took breaks. Studying is not my forte. I, I have pretty bad ADHD and, and will go a little sore crazy. But I really decided that if I was going to actually quit what was a, a pretty successful job, I, I'm, I should give it a fair chance. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the only way to give it a fair chance is by, by putting in some, some true lab work. Um, right. I had always taken the game pretty loosely. I, I was certainly a recreational player playing for fun, but I, I felt confident enough. I thought the base was there that if I put the time into really a, a deep dive into the, the theoretical background, um, I could make some progress and, um, hopefully it worked. I, I certainly felt a lot more confident. I, as I was doing the study, I kept thinking to myself, there's a famous poker quote and I'm sure I'm going to get it wrong, but it's something along the lines of if you were to play yourself two months ago and you don't think that person is a total fish, you're not studying enough. And it's, you know, some, some loose saying along those lines. And as I kept studying, I really felt that that was me, but for one week, just, you know, every week, I feel like week old me was a miserable poker player. Uh, and that's how I knew it was working. All right. Can you talk me through it a bit? Because, you know, I, I, I see a lot of people st- uh, spend a lot of time studying, but I feel like they studied the wrong thing because, well, it's not only about how much time you spend on studies, but it's the quality of that time. Clearly, what you were doing must have worked because, let's face it, you're in a span of like about a year, you moved from a recreational to playing some crazy high stakes, like 300, 600 uh, games. Yeah. I mean, I, I don't want to in any way pretend that I'm one of the, you know, world's 100 best PLO players, despite probably um, making that in the last few years in PLO. I think a lot of credit goes to game selection and game access, which is a very underrated skill in in poker. But as far as my original study went, um, I, I giving them full credit, I just did a, a very deep dive into Run at Once. Um, and took in everything that that site possibly had to offer, including five-year-old Phil Galfon videos, watching them multiple times, making sure that I, I understood why he was making the bets that he was making and sort of tried to train my brain to think the way his brain was thinking. Um, my success limited as it had been in poker up to this point um, was clearly from an exploitative perspective that's that tends to be what i'm good at coming from um, a real estate background negotiating getting used to selling an image of myself um understanding how people think and i think learning from phil who his main poker skill is similar really helped i i got i probably just lucky in a way that one of the top poker players in the world happened to teach the game that i particularly wanted to play and thinks along the similar lines, not that I would ever say, I think like Phil Galfon, but, um, the way he learns and processes the information 
from a, a poker perspective is similar to how I wanted to and thought of the game. Um, so yeah, I, I just spent a ton of time absorbing as much as I could from him. Um, got in contact with, uh, one of the run at once pros named Corey Mikesell, who literally wrote, wrote a book on three bet pots and PLO. And, and to me does the best job of translating Munker Sims for PLO into an absorbable format, uh, with graphs and, and just easier to read visuals. Um, spoke and work with him a bit and then just started, started using Munker and running Sims. Um, and trying to digest as much information as I could. All right. Yeah, it's interesting that you mentioned uh, that it was sort of a lucky coincidence that Phil Galfond presents the information and thinks in a similar way how you process the information. Uh, I think that's that's a really important uh, point you make here because you know a lot of people try to see poker as if there is one way of playing the game and there's one way of studying the game and very often what happens like somebody who doesn't naturally think in a way like Galfon thinks would watch all the videos and get no benefit right whereas for somebody like you you know it's a tremendous benefit and by the way i think like phil Galfon, the way he presents the information the way he voices his thoughts especially when he's playing is just i don't know if well, I probably know of like a couple more guys who are on the same level and being able to express the thoughts as clearly as he does while playing. Uh, and we actually had a discussion with him recently about it. And uh, there's going to be, or probably the episode with him is going to be uh, published before this one is aired. But uh, yeah, there's going to be a nice, nice line uh, there. Uh, and, you know, anyway, so... Big shoes to fill. I'll I'll uh, I'll try not to embarrass Sensei here. Now yeah. that we've now, now that we've become friends, and and one of the reasons I'm here is for a, a project that I'm I'm sort of doing with with his poker site. I will uh, I'll do my best not to say anything anything foolish. If if I do, it's not it's not anything he taught me. Right. Okay. Yeah. So all the good stuff comes from him, and uh, all the foolishness that's that's just <laughs> that, that's my own natural doing. self. Absolutely. <laughs> with with maybe uh, a little bit of of Ben Lamb thrown in there. All right. Okay, and we're definitely going to talk about Ben Lamb as well. And But let's progress too. So you study like a crazy, basically like a crazy person, let's face it. Six months, eight to 12 hours, you know, quite a dedication. And then basically that whole thing happened during the WSLP, right? Well, first yeah, of all, the, so obviously the Bay Area tournament, but... I had, I mean, there, there's some more boring details that go into it. I, I had the largest deal of my career closing towards the end of what would that be? 2018. Um, that was going to be a, a, a solid, um, you know, a, a low six figures commission that I, I was pretty much decided this is the only deal I'm going to work on. Um, and I'm going to take all my other free time and prepare for when this deal closes. And I want to use this as sort of my catalyst point to get out of this career. Um, I had, I was in a big fight with my company internally and I knew, you know, come January one, I wanted to have this wrapped up and be done. Mm -hmm. uh, so I, I had been, I had started that study process probably around October, 2018. Uh, I went to, I, so this is a, uh, I don't know if you've ever heard of, of run it up. 
compared to run it once, but run yeah. it up is Jason Somerville, the, the father of Twitch poker, um, Jason Somerville's company, which I have been going to for a few events. Now, I just think they're the most fun poker events in the world, small buy-ins. And I, I had been going up there and, and I, I really had been just only studying till that point. Um, and I went to their April, 2019, run it up after what at that point had been basically six months of study and really mixed it up in the live streets for the first time and just felt like, and this sounds very, you know, very silly, but just felt like I was by far the best player at every table I sat at, um, and built a ton of confidence from that. I think I, you know, I, I got 10th in the 500 person main event field, um, probably won every cash game I, I sat at and just really as a poker player, after studying, getting results like that, um, uh, just really builds confidence tremendously came back and played in that battle of the Bay tournament, which I would never play. I, I don't enjoy no limit hold'em tournaments very much, but because I had just gone on, on the deep run in the main event there, I thought, you know what, why not? I'll, I'll follow it up, um, with, a little more practice before I get to WSOP and essentially ran away with it. Um, went chip leader at the final table, um, first to first for a hundred thousand dollar score, which was by far my biggest score at the time. Um, and that really led just directly into WSOP. That was the end of May, 2019. Mm-hmm. And just sort of took that, took that straight into the, into world series. All right. How did Where it I feel? certainly made some big mistakes <laughs> to right. start? But I just wonder how did it feel? Cause you know, you, you basically start your study process, right? You mm-hmm. don't have, let's face it. You don't have much experience at the, you know, at the, those expensive tournaments, the big prizes, et cetera, et cetera. And all of a sudden you're the final table. How did it feel? Like what went on? That's a really, that's a really good question. I, um, I was one of those people who considered myself very notoriously unlucky before this run. And it was sort of a running joke among my friends, how bad Thal runs um, to the point where some of my friends would literally give me edge and actually still do to this day to flip against me and things like that. And I, um, the, 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 it was a three day tournament and the final table was on a full separate last day. So they could run it separately with a crowd and stuff. And I ran terrible, which sounds ironic, but terrible going into the final table. And I had talked to some of my poker friends the night before thinking, and I, and I remember having this conversation. I said, all you, I don't know if we can swear on this thread, but I, I literally said, all you fuckers better watch tomorrow. I'm getting, I'm winning all my flips. It's happening. And I sort of showed up and, and within the first orbit against, I think I, I, I was chip lead and the guy who was fourth and third or fourth in chips. Um, I, I held ace King over Queens to just take a over two to one chip lead over second place. Um, and as soon as that held, I thought, you know what, this is, this is going to be it. I'm going to, I'm going to run good today and just win it. And, um, I never really thought about it after that. That's just what happened. I won another huge ace King over queen spot. Um, you know, my, my semi bluffs all worked. It was just one of those, there was essentially no resistance to the point that, uh, first place was 107,000 and we chopped four ways. Uh, and I got 101.5, uh, 
So I had, I think I had more chips than the rest of the, I had more chips than the rest of the table combined when we were forehanded. Um, and everybody else wanted to do a chip deal because the ICM pressure was going to be so absurd on them that it was, it was going to be, um, everybody was around 13 big blinds, I think, and I had about 50. Mm-hmm. Um, so they just, they just couldn't play poker anymore. There was going to be really no more poker played. It was whoever sort of got unlucky and had to call one of my all-ins for a, a, a ridiculous 50,000 ICM chance. Mm-hmm. Um, so everybody just sort of wanted to stop and, and it was is about as smooth sailing as you could ever possibly hope. Mm. Wow. So you win this thing and then what, like, how does that feel? Because that's basically a life-changing win. Incredible relief. Uh, that was the first time since I had decided maybe two years ago that going into poker was something that I wanted to actually try that I was like, Hey, this might work. Maybe I, I can do this. Um, so it was, I think more than more relief than anything else, which sounds in a way silly. It's not like I, I, I was, I was financially stable. I had a good job. I just really wasn't enjoying life at all at that point. Um, the, the, the internal logistics with my job just made, um, a lot of it feel like a, a very heavy grind on a day-to-day basis. And this just sort of was a big weight lifted off my shoulders. Like, Hey, I, I might be able to really do this. Um, it took away a lot of the nerves for the upcoming summer and made it a little bit more exciting. Mm. Okay. So let's talk about that summer then. Um, yeah, so I am a total degen, um, which I justified with my career previously. And I, so I've I've had for those of you who know, um, like an OR card at MGM, which means I'm a I, I play table games and will punt. And I I have gone fully broke twice before in my life completely. Um, you know, to 99 cent drive through is my full budget broke um, on multiple occasions after running up more than a six figure bankroll. So. Um, I was really determined not to do that this time. I was going to take, this was the first time in my life I was going to take poker as a profession and not play table games. So I get there with what is now about a 300K bankroll and I lose, I think about 240 of it in the first two weeks um, playing absurdly large cash games and sports betting um, and just overall being a moron. And decided to take 10,000 of the remaining uh, 60 that I had left for my poker bankroll, figuring, hey, you know, if this goes out, back to real estate we go, um, to play the 10K short deck. And I sold three $100 pieces <laughs> to that. I sold three 1% pieces to that to, uh, to, to three separate poker friends and went and, and fired it up and managed to just sun run that thing on one bullet. I have those for, for people who follow WSOP, I have a, a very, I guess, famous or infamous final table there where I sort of played the villain against Chance Corneth. Um, he was the, the known pro and I, uh, consider myself a comfortable live recreational to the point that I will give it back to the, to the live pros and just refuse to let him play table captain to the point of trying to get under his skin. And, um, he ran a, a very big, bluff when we were first and second in chips forehanded, um, that I, I called them off on the river fairly light and essentially sealed the tournament on. Um, and, uh, yeah, after winning that pretty much everything turned around and I, I, I couldn't really lose for the rest of summer until I 
took the next level of shot taking that is known as Triton poker. <laughs> so you take the last 10K, well, the 10K out of the 60, and you yep. you said you basically go into this knowing that, hey, if, if I fail, it's just back to real estate. So, And you know you're going to do well in real estate, right? So you didn't really fell, feel like huge pressure on it, did you? There was an overwhelming pressure. I mean, I'm v- always very aware of how silly it sounds to be in a lucky enough position to have that quality of safety net. However, everything is relative. And for me at the time, I dreaded going back to that tremendously. Um, I was coming out of a very ugly situation that ended in all three of my partners mutually suing each other and just months and months and months of a lot of pain from what used to be close friends. Um, and it was just not something that I wanted to go back into and get into. So while yes, it is grace to have the safety net from the perch that I was on, I really did not want, want to have to fall back into that. Mm. Okay. And plus I, I, I assume it would also kind of hurt on a, on a level that you kind of you set out to do something to achieve something in poker and you know going back to real estate that would basically mean that you failed right yeah i'm one of those guys who will flip the board over a monopoly with my girlfriends type competitive um Mm. it's it's bad uh like when i was playing risk growing up my friends would all gang up to play against me just because they wanted to tilt me because i couldn't handle losing um like yeah the, the the option of failure for this in my mind didn't exist, um, which makes no sense given how ridiculous I was shot taking, but I, I, that, that's sort of counterintuitive when you're putting up 15% of your bankroll or more on, on one tournament. But, um, yeah, in my mind, I, 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 uh, as cliche as it sounds, failure really wasn't an option. I just, I, I, I was going to do whatever it took to try to not let that happen. All right. I see. So the first bracelet, that, that's probably for a competitive person like yourself, getting the bracelet, that piece of metal, that probably is meaningful. The bracelet was amazing. Um, the, the, the process of the tournament was what was really cool for me. I had never gotten to play with that quality of player before um, and interact with them. And, and that's where a lot of my relationships that launched my quote unquote poker career, what I benefit from now really started. Um, I got to play Laden things with Bill Perkins, you know, at, at one of the tables there and, and get friendly with him. Um, I'm a level one Psalm wine is a, so that's a, a sommelier, uh, wine professional. Um, and wine's a big passion of mine. And, and Ben Lamb was sitting at the table behind me and had two phenomenal bottles of red in his backpack <laughs> there. And we got into a wine conversation. Um, Anthony, who, uh, you know, I, I can't get in, won't get into the details about him, but high stakes, super sports, better DJ Anthony, um, was at a table across the way and was very tilted that this silent assassin, Asian kid, probably young twenties, never said a word was just destroying him. And with maybe 40 people left in the tournament, Anthony offered 20 to one that this kid was going to win the tournament. And he, he had average below average deck at best. The, this Asian guy. And, and Anthony said, I, I want, I want 20 to one. This kid's going to win the tournament. And I, you know, not knowing anything, just wanting to sort of be a part of this, just snap booked it. 
And I said, but if I win, I that because he had been talking with Ben Lamb the whole time about these private these short deck games. And I said, but I'll book this. I want access to one short deck game. And he said, yeah, of course you're, you know, I've never seen you before. Therefore you must be a complete fish. You, you have access. Uh, I end up busting this kid out, go and find him. We talk, I, I go and play in, in one of the, the short deck games with him, Ben Lamb, Depa, just a bunch of the, the high stake um, short deck guys from that game, become closer friends with them. Um, ben ends up leaving in the middle of the game. We'd exchange numbers. I wasn't sure where he was going. I get a, a text, look down on my phone and Ben comes, come outside and meet me in my car. I go, you know, what's going on? Are you sure I should leave this game? This is my first, I'm already loving life, right? I'm sitting with some of the best players in the world at high stakes short deck. What could be more fun? Um, this was right after I had won the bracelet. I, I, I was, you know, ecstatic. I thought this was as good as it gets. This was already a dream come true. Why is he asking, you know, should I really leave? But if Ben Lamb is asking you to leave, to come outside, I'll take my chances, right? Come outside. He drives me to, uh, and this is where I'll, I'll probably skip on some of the names, but, uh, the house of one of the a retired NBA hall of famer, um, as opposed to an active NBA hall of famer of a, an NBA hall of famer for a, a private PLO game. And it was straight out of Molly's game of the movies, like nothing I had ever seen. Um, and that was sort of the start to my, my high stakes, private game PLO career was just just with all within really a week this happened. And I think a lot of it was because I wasn't afraid to sort of, um, I don't know, I think the way I grew up and um, got into things, I, I was never a moment is too big type person. Um, so sitting down, even though it was a huge part of my role in my first ever 10K tournament or anything like that, um, I felt very confident around all the pros and then going and playing in the cash games ever afterwards, I felt very confident with all of them. And it was easy to sort of just... Um, quote unquote, fit in. Wow. What a story. I mean, it, it is so awesome that, you know, you, you, like you said, you're already feeling like this is a big moment for you. You're playing this cash game with these big guys and it's amazing. And all of a sudden there's a bigger moment and you kind of get to lift the curtain up on what's happening in uh, some of these private games, which are absolutely insane and makes makes real poker in the casino games pretty boring to be honest. So I, yeah, I mean, I have no idea if Ben actually liked me at the time. Now I can say, I think he's one of um, the, the very few true, just good guys in the private poker scene um, because of some of the stuff I've seen and interacted with him, which is why I don't mind using his name. I think he's just genuinely one of the absolute good guys involved in that. But at the time, I don't know if this invite was because Hey, this kid just won $300,000. Let's get a piece of it. Um, and he's a fish or because we were generally friends and he thought this would be a fun experience for me. I'm, I, you know, I, I'll never know, but that story gets, gets somehow crazier. So, uh, I mean, I'm up probably like 20,000 in the short deck game that we're playing, which to me is exceptional. Um, you know, my bankroll now at the time is at 350,000. It was at 60 and I won 295 from the tournament and I, hop straight into a $25,000 buy in short deck game. So this, this is my whole bankroll. Um, the, the private PLO game that, that he takes me to, uh, you know, I asked him if I need to bring any chips or anything like that. He got, he goes, no, don't worry about it. You know, your, your credit's good. <laughs> okay. That I think he thought I would, I would just be too scared to, 
screw anybody over, which is true. I would have just been genuinely too scared to not pay anyone if yeah. I lost. He, that, was a, that was a very good read um, by him, as usual. So um, he takes me there, and it's, you know, it's, it's nothing I've ever seen. The, the guy is the, the NBA Hall of Famer's face is on his table. Uh, the felt is literally a picture of the guy's face with his championship trophy. Um, there's women running around in lingerie. Everybody's drinking like I've never seen it a game. Um, I think I think Kirk was there. Ozzy Matt was there the first night I was there. Um, I mean, just some players that you know I've seen watch TV, and then some super duper wealthy businessmen and a couple athletes. Um, and I just did not feel like I belonged in any way, but it looked like a lot of fun, and I know how to play PLO, so why not? Um, I proceeded to get stuck. Uh, this is a 25k cap game that went up to a 50k cap game. Um, I got stuck 150,000 at the 25 K cap in about three hours, um, which was almost half my bankroll at the time. And the guy who, who was the game runner, um, who was technically his game, not the NBA player. Uh, when I went to reload after the 150 to get in for 175, stopped me and said, uh, Hey, you know, I, I don't know you, but should you really be doing this? Are you Okay. And I said, you know what? I really appreciate that you did that. I, this, it, given the environment, we don't know each other. I would never expect somebody to to ever say anything like that. Um, yes, I'm okay. You know, I I understand that this is crazy shot taking, but from where I I started and where I am now, to me, it's worth the experience, and I want to sort of see what I can do. Um, in fact, if you'd like, I'd like to prop bet that I'll get unstuck by the end of the night. And he sort of laughed at me and, you know, thought I was joking. And when I sat back down at the table, I, with my, a, another 25 K bullet, I, I casually announced the table, Hey, you know, I'm, I'm down. All right. I casually joked with Ben, I think. And I said, Hey, I'm, I'm down 150 in my first game. Oh, what odds did I get unstuck? And I, I think he laid me four to one or something like that. And sure enough, by the end of the night, I was up 35,000 and everybody just thought this was the funniest thing they had ever seen. Ben lost an extra 10 K on the side to me. I think he put up, uh, no, he lost, he lost probably 12. The exact number is not, not that important. And everybody just thought this was the funny, like, who is this kid that Ben brought who then <laughs> got stuck 150 ended up winning somehow scammed him out of, out of more side action. And from then on, I just had an invite. Um, and that was sort of it. Wow. Wow. What a story. But I mean, it's there's two crazy parts. Well, it's so many crazy parts about it, right? Uh, and never mind the guy's face on the felt of the table. I mean, what the fuck is that? <laughs> it's, I can just imagine that situation. It must be weird. It is It is weird. But you know what? I guess if you're um, at that level where you, there, there's a picture of you holding an NBA championship trophy um, and your MVP award, you, you know, you might as well put it to use. Yeah. What, what better what better place to display it than on your own felt in your own yeah, in your own yeah, insane mansion in Vegas I suppose but yeah so anyway I mean I stuck 150 so stuck half the bankroll I mean what's going on through your mind when you're going for that extra bullet like you know this was one of the few times in my life that it was great to be a complete degenerate um, I have chased my losses many times before uh, I'm someone who has owed more money than I've wanted to pay to pay in taxes from a big career year and flown to Vegas to try to make that money at a roulette table to pay off taxes. 
Um, so I often have made very poor financial decisions in terms of gambling. And this was one of them on a long list. Um, so to me, it was more about what I wasn't thinking, which was logically and just chasing the losses. I, I had a pot against Tim Pham, um, who's, in, who's a real old school player. And Tim is one of the few guys in the games who just has a bar none run at once policy. And this was when we had increased the cap to 50 K each, mm-hmm. uh, later in the night. And I, I had started, started to sort of climb my way back. And I think I was probably up to about a $75,000 stack and we got all in and I was probably a 72, 73% favorite. Um, I like, um, I think I had it, it, what exactly I had top set against some sort of semi draw, um, with, with a pretty good blocker to his draw and, and um, at by at the time, by far the biggest pot I'd ever played in my life, um, would have you know it was about given what I had lost worth thirty three percent of my total net worth at the time. Um, that was in the middle, and Ben, being the starting to show what an incredibly good guy he was, asked him forcefully on my behalf to run it twice. And uh, Tim said, "Fuck you! I only run it once." And uh, we ran it once and I won. And, you know, if I lose that 27% or whatever it was, my trajectory probably changes. So um, I, I, that is a moment that I certainly have thought back on a, a number of times because I, I, there probably was no going back to the well if I lose that one. Um, and I'm very liable to, to follow up the next day and do something extremely stupid to try to chase it back. So, um, yeah, I, as far as what was going through in my mind, old degenerate habits. Mm. Yeah. And you're right to point out, like, I mean, there's probably more than one moment where, you know, that probably just sticked out for you because it was the biggest part at that, that stage of your career. And, uh, we can all think back to some parts that defined the career in, in one way or another, you know, everybody yep. had a part that stopped their progress or, you know, set them back. Um, some people had many of those spots, unfortunately, and, and kept getting stuck in, um, yeah, you know, and without being able to progress higher, but yeah, but then, yeah, you go, you go for the 175 case. So the, the extra bullet in your mind, did you think if you lose that one, you keep going to the cage or oh, that was ah. the last one? It's hard for me to answer that. I mean, I, I truly am the epitome of, of a degen in these spots. And I was just so far down the rabbit hole at that point that I, I really was not thinking straight. Mm. I mean, I, let's any realistic cap would have been two bullets. I mean, first of all, I, I shouldn't be sitting in the game with all of myself, right? I mean, that's mm. just, it's an environment that I don't know. I went to a private, this is someone's house. I have no idea if you, who, who, 70% of the people are, this is, is not an environment that I should be comfortable in playing with for this bankroll or anything. So I, I think in terms of was this the last bullet or any logical thought process had been so far out the window once I walked in the door that I was just kind of along for the ride and whatever happened, happened. And I was just going to have to live with those consequences. Um, there is something sort of peaceful about having gone broke gambling twice and dug yourself out of it that if it happens again, um, I'll, I'll, I'll survive, I guess. Mm. Yeah. I might probably a bit of a false sense of security, not really security, but sort of, you know, you, you feel like, yeah, whatever I've been there before, but then every time you get there, there are a lot of regrets. Cause you think like, why oh, the yeah. hell did I do it? 
Yeah, there have been a lot of very, very, very painful nights of regret. I, I agree. But somehow that pain has not stopped me from continuing to uh, to push that limit on a very consistent basis. Yeah. And I find it interesting that, you know, the guy at the cage uh, did his little speech. Sounds like something out of the movie Molly's Game where she gave a speech to the rug. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I that's one of the there's just not a lot of moments from these games, but that is one. Um, I mean, I, I can picture him stopping in front of me on on my way over there and being like, hey, are you OK? Mm. Which is I've seen that happen before. Uh, what's your read on that? Why? Why is he doing it? You know, I think my money just isn't very relevant to them, right? If they squeeze out another 50,000 from me. So these games are raked at $200 a pop. Um, they also take half the tips back from the girls. So I would guess on average per game that runs, they're probably netting 50 to a hundred thousand a night, um, in rake and tips me losing 25 or another 50,000 to the table, which they're going to only minorly benefit from, if at all, just doesn't really matter. Um, whereas the longevity of the game and to a lot of these guys being a decent human being, I think does matter. They've seen a lot of people come and play and, and watching somebody um, like bleed out in front of them probably isn't that appealing. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. And plus also for them, the sort of well-being of the other players in yeah. the game is important and the other players for sure don't want to see somebody wrecked right because that you know well i'm sure a couple that's why do, they're there but yeah yeah nobody wants to see those things i mean you get wrecked at your own time don't 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 go broke at our table please you know that's that's, that's not a pretty sight it is a very interesting balance of characters at games like that, right? Because you do have the guys who are there who just for essentially fun, which is weird for other people to think about when you think about the amounts of money in play. But to to some of the guys there, that is really just a, a guy's night out, like what we would think of, of of sitting around and playing, you know, a hundred dollar buy-in with friends is the same to some of this. And it's true, they really don't want to see chaos and pain but to some of the other guys there they're there to make money um and they would you know they would bring me the racket chips themselves um yeah. if they knew it was my last dollar so there really is an interesting contrast in those games yeah yeah and you're right that you know some of those guys are just sitting there it's fun and that's the recreational player that a lot of the pros never even met and don't don't even understand very true. Yeah. And also, um, like, the fact that you mentioned, you know, these games rake, like, 50 to 100K. And I've played some of those games as well myself, right? And then I, every time I hear discussion about, you know, oh, the online poker rake is unbeatable. This is... <laughs> I, I'm thinking, like, well, <laughs> well, you know, guys, I mean, <laughs> I mean, please. But yeah, yeah. I, I mean, it, those are certainly different fields, right? We have very different players in those in, in terms of what makes the game beatable or not. There's there's gentlemen in in these games who, um, let's just say, are playing a lot looser than you're going to find in your average uh, online game. Um, but yeah, it's it, the rake is is certainly beatable. Um, 
It yeah. just all depends on, on the willingness to gamble of, of the other participants. Exactly. But that's my point. That's my point that it's not about the rake. It's about the game, you know? Yes. And if you don't have a good player pool, the rake is not going to save it. You know, if there's no recreational players, it doesn't matter if there's no rake. I mean, how, who is making money? I mean, sure, the top players are always going to be making money. But, you know, if you're not one of the top players, you're always going to be a dog if you're playing uh, in the games where there's no recreational players. So it's not about the rake. It's about uh, how to attract the recreational players. And that's what people should be thinking, especially in the online world as well. You know, too many people are just way too focused on rake this and rake that, et cetera, et cetera. No, change, change the format of the game. Make it more interesting for the recreationals. Make it more engaging. Like, for example, like what Run It Once is doing in many ways is experimenting yes. with some ideas that to make the, to add that little bit of fun to the game. And that's what we need because the two true recreational players, they want to have fun. Some of them want their face on the felt of the table. You know, that's the kind of people you want in your game. <laughs> yes, that is absolutely true. And, and um, it's important to keep in mind the different types of fun, right? So for some of them, it's really to battle. Some of them want to battle the best players. And that's why you have guys like Ben Lamb, who is obviously going to obliterate games like this, invited because they want... You have professional athletes in these games who, who their idea of fun is to battle the best. Um, but some of them are there. And, and, and this is why game, as you said, game selection is so important and sort of awareness of the situation. You have some of, of um, the more wealthy gentlemen there who is, let's be, let's just be really honest for a bit. And, and this is their night away from their family. And they're there for the women in lingerie. They're there for the, the platters of Coke that are being passed around. Um, and the open bar, and this is their, this is their night out. And it, you know, if they lose 50 to a hundred thousand, um, given their financial situation, it's worth the cost of admission. Um, so it, it really is just all about game selection. And I think you're right. People really overlook that when they talk about rake online and, and, um, if there's a table full of crushers, it, that, that's not going to matter, but you can pay the highest rake in the world if you have a good enough game. Yeah, exactly. Let's let's start with the with the apps. Okay. So basically apps and discuss. Let's let's go for it. Let's let's talk. I have so much to say about those as well. Yeah. So I mean I, I think a lot of it just goes back to the point you made about um the key factor in being a winning poker player, a profitable poker player is obviously who you're playing against. And I, I think in the poker world, people realize that, but public perception, a lot of people don't realize that, right? They think, oh, if you're a winning poker player, you can sit at any table and win. I mean, that's just, that's really not the case, right? You still have to be better than the people you're playing against. It's a zero sum game. This isn't, you know, you're not joining some random um, Call of Duty lobby on Xbox Live. And if you're a professional Call of Duty player, you're, you're playing against eight other random people and you're just gonna, gonna win every time. Um, in poker, usually same level skill gravitates towards each other based on stakes and things like that. So to, to get your win percentage up, you invite players intentionally that you're worse at with the pandemic, what we saw, obviously there was some of this before, but with, with the huge increase in app games and online play, what we saw is that these players who were norm, known to be game starters or fish or whales or whatever you want to call them, 
in their games being actively competed over and recruited in what was a lot of times just really shady, um, almost malicious ways to, to try to exploit them and get as much money out of them as possible in quote unquote, your game or your app. Uh, knowing that, and this actually does go back to rate structure a little bit. Let's take, um, you know, poker bros, for example, which is, is one of the bigger ones, right? With the rake structure that you have on there, and I was invited to even do some recruiting for them for a little bit. Um, you're looking at probably two to 3% of players can sustainably win, which means everybody else is just going to punt money over the summer. And to get players on an app like that, you need to actively recruit. So what somebody like me, and I stopped doing this fairly quickly, um, but any of these guys who put out, let's say, staking offers for their apps or any of these advertisements are doing is, is you're no, knowingly luring people in to a situation where they essentially can't win to profit from that. And I know that's a lot of businesses, but poker is a little bit different in the, in, the, in the sense that it is a true zero-sum game. And you know that most of these people have no chance and you're essentially inviting them in as prey to be preyed upon by the very small elite group that's going to be winning these games. Yeah. And the reason you're doing it, because if you run the game, in reality, you're the one who's winning. Yep. Right. If you, if you, and you don't even have to be running it. If you're just associated with that, if you have a rake back deal where you're getting yep. a percentage of the people playing, if you get invited to the games where the fish show up because you've brought one yourself, um, anything like that, it really is. And, and I, so I, I, towards the end of last year, as the bankroll grew, started to grow, play in some games that I probably shouldn't be playing in. And, and one of those games was one of the bigger mixed games that, that happens in Ivy's room once or twice a week. And those games are really built around people. And this is embarrassing, but people like me who shouldn't be in those games who are either I was playing them to learn because I felt that my bankroll could sustain it. And I have an ego problem and thought that I was better at mixed games than I was or complete recreational players who are playing in the mixed games to have fun because they enjoy a mixed player is going to be losing. And those recreational players instead mixed games, the, the messages that I saw trying to recruit them in the way that, that these different groups were fighting over them to bring them in, to be the ones who had the ability to take their money is, um, I mean, it's just, it, it's cutthroat, but it's worse than that. It's whatever the, a more negative connotation of cutthroat is. It's, it's just, it's dirty. I mean, it really just is. It's not like these people need this money to sustain themselves. They, they're a lot of them are winning professional poker players that have been for a long time. It's just going for the lowest hanging fruit by any means necessary, even if that means pretending that there's other fish on, even if that means multi-accounting, as we've seen, you know, where pros are playing on a recreational player's accounts to 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 lure them in and make them think that they're playing in a safer environment. Um, I mean, the stuff that goes on here is just, it's really disgusting. It is. And it's crazy how greed drives that sort of behavior. Because, you know, the whole success of the affiliate model there is because people are greedy. Because you tell somebody, hey, listen, you, you get a player, it doesn't matter how good the player or bad or good the player is, just get him on and you're getting a cut from the rake and they're going to rake if they play, you know, two, three hours, they're going to rake a few thousand, right? And you get a piece of that. And sure, so many people say yes. And, 
you know, like yourself, you said you 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 even did it yourself for for a bit until you realized like how shady and dirty that that is. I have that experience as well. I I uh, uh, I've been offered a chance to promote the game, and I quickly got out of it because I realized, well, this is just bullshit. I don't I don't like it. It's uh, it's stupid. You know, there was a time when the games, when the apps just started, when I actually believed that the games are soft. Then it's different. But when you stop believing, then it's basically like, what are you doing? You knowingly put people in a game where they shouldn't be playing. Where they're just getting hunted, right? They're just purely being exploited. And to recruit people, you can't, obviously, if you're going to be a successful recruiter, you can't tell anyone that. You can't, you, you, you can't say, well, you know, you're probably going to be in a game with four people who are hunting you and maybe one other recreational and you're paying rake that is essentially unbeatable unless it was a game full of fish. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, the game's just, there's really no, no way to sustain and, and win in that. Um, so if, if the person isn't playing purely for fun, if it isn't an actual recreational player play, playing for fun, you're setting them up to be exploited. Um, and that's just the lengths that some people went to, to recruit people to these games was just really disappointing to see. Um, mm. I mean, even talk about the, the thing with jungle man that came out, right. Just recently where he was playing on, um, a recreational player's account specifically to, to prey on other recreational so that they felt comfortable. Can you, we can only imagine how often this must actually be going on mm. without people getting caught. Cause it's a very hard thing to catch. How do you ever really know that yeah. somebody else was playing on the account? I, I, the, the many times over this has probably taken place over the last few months while these private games existed is, is incalculable. Mm. Uh, and it's just, it's a shame that it exists, but it's such a big industry. It, it almost does seem unavoidable, which you brought up earlier. I don't know if this was before we were live, but run it once. Um, it's why something like run it once with the anonymous sites and the, the built-in um, hood type system, um, just these things that make it a fair, even playing field for everyone sitting down and so much harder to take advantage or prey on anyone. I just think are so important um, for the longevity of online poker. Absolutely. Uh, otherwise, we're just going to be dead soon. Absolutely. The problem is that run it once compared to the apps is not sexy because with the apps, you always get the story of like, hey, listen, you know, there's this reg. He's winning like over the last period of like six months. He's winning $2 million on the app. My question is, so why are you talking to me? If you have a guy and you have a piece of him is win- winning $2 million, why do you need me? Like, you know. Well, and, here's and my story. For, but go ahead. Yeah, go ahead. No, no, no. I, I, I cut you off. Well, basically, no, I, I'm now curious to hear your story. But all right, let me let me just say the final thing here. Because, you know, all these shady techniques of like, oh, there's this fish who's dumping so much money, you know? So come play. There's this other reg. He's winning so much money. You're on the same level as him. You're going to be also making $2 million. All these shady techniques and like stupid bullshit and then occasional message that's the worst for me when you know when you're playing some of these private apps the super high stakes that you obviously are in like some sort of group on telegram yep. or whatever right and you're going to be getting these messages of like hey this fish is online he's dumping so much money right now Every but time. he's in yeah. the chat he is in the chat and, and i mean what what is this i mean yeah, he knows that this is happening and it's just 
That's hilarious. I think people who aren't involved in these games in the way we are don't realize that, that that is what you just described is a occurrence in every one of these high stakes groups where you have these group chats to talk about getting the games running and everybody in the group chat knows who the targeted players are. And it's just, uh, I don't know. There's just something really weird and wrong with that environment. Um, to me, it's different if the guy is fully aware of it and knows and he's playing for fun. I think that's something very different. But most of the time, as you know, that's not the case. These guys don't know they're being teed up in the way that they are. Uh, and I, I don't know. That's just as someone who was being teed up myself for a while. I, I think I'm more sensitive to that than most. Um uh, but I mean, so you talk about the crazy win rates and stuff. So here, just a little side side story for you. So my private game uh, went on one of the the apps when uh, my private PLO game, when quarantine started and we play, you know, usually we start the game at around 50, 50, 50 and goes up to 50, hundred. And then somebody straddles to 200 and even 400 by the end of the night. And it's usually about a 25 K cap game, but because online plays so, so much bigger and we wanted to play a lot more hours, we started the game off as a five ten game, right? Which for our, our group is tiny um, with a $20 straddle sometimes. And when I say sometimes they, they put it on a lot over the first um, and I, because it was smaller. So to get into the private games that when I, backtracking a little bit when i i started to get consistently invited to them after that first night i won my first however many sessions and i started getting made fun of a lot there because nobody had literally it was a joke that nobody has ever seen me lose uh, there so in order to keep getting invited back i had to sell the game runner which is another shady part of these games because they don't tell anyone right um i had to sell the game runner 25 to 30 percent of my action each time to get seats in the games which they don't tell the other players um, so when, you know, when the other players ask go, Hey, why, you know, why is he here? Clearly he's, he's winning. Um, I have to sort of act like I can chip dump and, you know, um, play splashy in, in the right spots and drink my tequila shots and everything like that to maintain a seat. But the real answer is it's because the guys running the games, making a profit off me. Mm-hmm. Um, you just can't say that. So when the app started up, um, it was so small that they didn't ask, he didn't ask for a piece. Um, at first. And I, I think he sort of, in a way he did was just a little oversight, right? I got invited to the group and he didn't ask for a piece. And, um, as absurd as this sounds over the first 4,500 hands in that group with, uh, you know, an, an NFL player and an NBA player, and then a couple of the, the regular whales who play in the games and very few pros. Um, I, I, in 4,500 hands, won 180 big blinds per hundred. Uh, not, not a mistake. Um, and, uh, after that quickly, you know, they, they did the accounting. I, I have, I have a screenshot in the the text that that one of the guys who's one of the admins in the group posted that show they've, they've run their group for about three years. It was never played this much because there wasn't quarantine, but they've had that app for about three years. Mm -hmm. And in a one month period, uh, I became the biggest winner in the group. Um, that had been running for three years. He, po- he posted the picture of total winnings at the top and go went, why the fuck is Thalo here with the picture? <laughs> <laughs> and um, sent ever, ever since he posted that, I, I had to be a bit more careful and, and then obviously had to, to sell a piece to keep playing. And actually they, they jumped the, it up to 2550 and I, I went on a little bit of downswing and things sort of balanced out in the world. 
Um, but yeah, I mean, there are just absurd win rates to be had in some of these groups if you can get invited to the right ones. And I think that is why it is such um, a big business and people try to keep it a dirty secret is because the money involved is just so absurd if you find yourself at the right position and can recruit the right players. I mean, to be able to play 180 big blinds for 100 is just, you know, it's like, what is happening? We were playing 300. It was essentially a 300 big blind deep minimum. Um, the buy-in was 300 bigs and would quickly get above that. And most rounds were straddled and, you know, you're playing with just an absurd skill edge when you're playing 300 bigs deep. Um, and it, yeah, it, it, it's, it's one of those spots that is just sort of unbelievable to be in and, and shows you why people will go to such lengths to develop groups like that if they can. Mm. Yeah. And the problem with that is that the group groups like this exist right obviously and there are some amazing games but there's a bunch of fake ass games which yep. pretend to be that group and yep. which pretend to have these crazy fish that pretend to have their version of Thalo who's winning 180 big blinds per hundred you know all the selling points and the reality is there is nothing and in some of those games, unfortunately, because obviously it depends on the group of players who are there involved. But again, we come back to the notion of greed. And some people are not going to stop at anything. Multi-accounting, right. we already talked about it. Collusion is even worse, especially if we think about PLO, PLO games. Well, let's say if two, three players share their cards, I mean, you know half a deck. How hard can it be to to profit? And it is crossing a line on such a huge level. So to me, it's incomprehensible. How could somebody do it? But at the same time, you think about it for a minute and you say, well, it's money. You know, if, if somebody doesn't have their ethics, um, for them, it's a no-brainer. I mean, why? For them, they just see it as if, well, they're just exploiting these stupid idiots who don't see this happening. Collusion's an entirely another discussion. I, I can't tell you, liter I literally can't tell you, um, for like personal safety and other reasons, the, the amount of times and the people who have approached me um, because I play on the, the high stakes ACR, no rat hole tables. And for those who don't know, um, America's card room is one of the only quote unquote legal, although I don't think any online poker that degree is legal sites in America. It's the, the, the biggest running America poker site. And they have these high stakes, no rat hole tables, which means you're not allowed to withdraw off the table for a week. Um, if you play, if you run up a stack to whatever dollar amount you run off, you can't cash out for a week. And if you sit back down with that stack, your, your, your count resets and they're nine handed. And they, they, the biggest table used to be 5,100. And during quarantine, they added 75,150 and 200,400. And because I am not fully integrated into the poker community, but people loosely know who I am when I'm sitting at a table. I was approached on multiple occasions to partake in what is rampant collusion on their card sharing, profit sharing, because at 200, 400, um, I, I mean, you, 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 you can just make so much money if you have three out of the nine people sharing cards. Um, and that's the biggest reason that I, I don't play on there anymore um, is because it's just terrifying. You, you just never know when you're being taken advantage of. And if you think you're not, you're delusional. When there's this much money at stake, you're just absolutely delusional. And you, it, it, what surprises me most 
is the surprise that other people have whenever stories about cheating and poker come out like this, this jungle man thing or stuff like that. You're talking about pure money. Poker is a, is a game of pure money. Think about what, what shady activities people do in regular businesses to, to get, to gain an edge, to think that people aren't going to do something where there's such a small chance of being caught to directly generate income is just delusional. Um, it's so much more rampant than the public knows. Um, and being coming from a pure recreational business background and very quickly integrating into high stakes poker has given me a weird perspective on that. Cause I think people talk to me differently than they do, um, normal people, quote unquote, normal people in these games. Cause they, they think I'm, I'm sort of safer to invite to this, this dark side or to take advantage of. And, uh, which is probably true, right? I don't, I don't have people to go to and be like, look what this guy told me, everybody go lynch him. Like mm -hmm. I, I don't have those people. Um, if I speak out, it's probably me who's going to get in trouble. So, yeah. uh, yeah, it's just, I think that side of it is insane. It is insane. And, uh, and like you said, anybody who thinks that this is not happening is delusional, but the reality is I was delusional for a while. I lost a lot of money in those games on an ACR before I completely stopped playing them. And it was ridiculous because, you know, at some point early on, I thought, well, this is definitely something fishy is going on, like for sure. I mean, you just look at the graph and your yeah. expected win rate is going through the roof and you're thinking, oh, but I'm make, making like double digit win rate per hundred over a big sample. Somehow I'm in the red. So it's going to turn around. And then right. you think about, you know, after a significant sample of hands, you realize like, well, clearly something is going on, but you keep playing, but I keep playing because I, I can't explain it because you want to believe, I want to believe now, listen, this is not happening. This is not happening. You want to believe, but then at some point you have to accept that, well, most likely explanation is, is the most obvious explanation. Yeah. And um, what are you going to do about it? I mean, I kept playing because it was still, some of these games were still profitable, which yeah. I, I knew that there was a, not a chance. I knew that it was likely that there was collusion ongoing at the tables that I was at and everybody was playing so bad that it was still profitable. Um, and I, I have the same, you know, with, with the graphs that I have, it's like you're making a third of what your expected win rate is, but you're still winning. So it's like, what am I going to do? not play for moral reasons, knowing yeah. that I'm not winning as much as I should be, but it's still profitable. So I'm still going to play. It's just, I don't know. It's just weird. Mm -hmm. um, it, there's just a very strange dynamic at a lot of these games where I think a lot of people just know that being cheated is probably happening and they're hopeful they can beat it anyways. Yeah. Um, yeah. Which is, is sort of, is weird, right? I mean, that's just a, a weird egotistical interior battle that you're having with yourself it's like well i don't want to be taken advantage of but i'm still probably a winning player in this lineup so i should be playing mm -hmm. absolutely and especially like if we think about it one of the aspects that makes the game look profitable to you on paper is because people make bad decisions yep but they're not making bad decisions because they know half a deck so they're making they a great extra... decision but it yes. looks like it looks like they're complete idiots Oh, some of the lines that, that you see on some of these that, that I, I think is just so funny when people try to justify. I mean, you, you see people take lines that just don't exist. Absolutely are 0% lines from guys you know 
are very good, successful winning players who would never make this play. Mm-hmm. And then the justification that other people have when you, when you show them this is, is just hilarious. It's like, what, why are you going to such extreme lengths to, to try to create a justification? That's so obvious. It's like, no, the guy knew four other fucking cards that were dead. What do you mean? He didn't, At this wasn't four, some, yeah. yeah, this wasn't some weird 0% line that he made as an exploit against this specific player because of X, Y, and Z. I, no, he, he, he knew that there were two fucking Kings folded. Like, Mm. what do you when he raised the king king four flop with seven eight nine ten and then continued to barrel he wasn't doing that as some weird exploit against the guy he thinks is overfolding. he knew that somebody had fucking folded kings like what do you Mm. come on yeah yeah and you know an extreme example of this is uh the conversation we had with um henry Cobain, which is also on the podcast and i recommend you guys Look it up, and I'm probably gonna put the specific time uh, in the, uh, either in the description or in the comments. So look it up. Where he actually talks about he was playing in a game against two. Well, it was a three-handed game, where his opponents were card mechanics, and they were basically stacking the deck against him all of the time. And he figured it out early on. Yet he kept playing because he thought that even though. They completely rigged the game, not even knowing the cards. They basically set up the game the way they want it. He thought, even though this is happening, I can still win because I'm better than. <laughs> you know, so if that is happening to such an extent, wow. you know, then what chance do we have? Because wow. always this ego thing of like, no, but the game is still good enough. I can still beat it. It is a notion that is really really dangerous because well you know what for the most part no you can't you can't yeah. beat it because there's no way yeah it e- ego is is of course a huge detriment in poker and and something that i have fallen into many many times um but you yeah. need that confidence otherwise you're never really gonna especially in, in it's a very thin line in poker right how confidence to to arrogance yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, let's get back to Jungleman for a second, right? Not <laughs> to single out Jungleman. Um, it's just that he happened to be on the receiving end of all the publicity. But my problem with the publicity is that it simmered out so quickly. You know, basically, he made a kind of an apology of saying, hey, listen, first of all, everybody's doing it, which I don't agree with because it's not the case. And even if it would be the case, it's not a good enough justification to go that way. And another so I don't thing agree that, with part of that, right? Like, why do you think it simmered out so quickly? Why was there more uproar within the high stakes poker community? Yeah, everybody wants to shut up about it because that's happening and they want, you know, to sort of... Because everyone's doing it like that. Yeah, to me, yeah. that's just a bit like, I, I think there wasn't the uproar and it simmered down so quickly because it is so rampant. Like, I think so yeah. many of them and jungle being as tied into the community as he is probably knows a lot of people who are doing it. Right. Mm. So it's like, Hey, if you throw me under the bus and want to talk a bunch of shit about what I did, then I'm going to talk about what you did. And I think that is so prevalent in the poker community. It's like, well, I know what you did and you know what I did. So neither of us can ever speak about it because it would only hurt both of our profits and image that when stuff like this comes up, it just dies down so much quicker than you would think. Mm, exactly and this is something that we talked about and i know i sort of have to mention a lot of the podcasts that i did previously but it is to the point as i was talking to michael francis um 
uh, last week, or I don't know when the episode is going to be published. But anyway, the, the, the episode with Michael Francisco, of course, was a high-ranking uh, member of Colombo family, one of the five right. New York families, right? And we talked about exactly this point. When you cross the line, when you go beyond what is ethical, it's pretty hard to get back because, well, you're sucked in. It doesn't matter yeah. whether you cross the line with the mafia or you cross the line with your fellow poker players. Now, like you said, because you know, if you're gonna if you're gonna throw fire into the uh, story with the jungle man, well, he's just gonna oust a lot of other people, and they don't yeah. want to do it. And that's the problem. You know, once you do something to compromise your integrity, well, it's gonna that's gonna haunt you. That's that's gonna be there forever with you, and one day it's gonna come out, and you just have to hope, like Jungle Man, that it's gonna simmer out really quickly because too many people are involved and they don't want to talk about it. Yep, I completely agree. I mean, I, I will readily admit that I ran into a point this summer after playing in the ACR games and being approached for collusion so many times. That I had a real conversation with somebody about it. Mm. And I, I mean, it was just, if it, well, fuck, if everybody else is doing it to me, it just seems like the prudent thing to do. This is an unregulated site. So thereby I can justify it because everybody's already doing something illegal. I know everybody else is already doing it. Why, why should I be the one suffering from the outside? And then for whatever reason, common sense and morals ended up winning out and it just wasn't worth the bottom line to do that. And, and I never pursued it, but I, I mean, I, I, I can't sit here and say that it, it was something I never considered because I had a real conversation on it. Mm. Uh, and I think it's very easy to get sucked into, especially in an industry like poker. Um, yeah, I, there's just so much shadiness already going on that, Hey, what's one more step forward. Mm. That's the thing. The one small step forward doesn't feel that big, but then, you know, you make a few of these steps and you know what? You can't turn back anymore because you're in too deep and then, it, uh, you're, you know, it is what it is. And one thing that you've mentioned, which I think is is key here, you try to justify it to yourself by saying, you know, well, there's a lot of people already doing it. So what the hell? Right. And this is what happened to Jungle Man in a way, at least from what we can understand from his apology first of all he said well everybody else is doing it and second he said uh it's pretty obvious to anyone who plays those games that this is happening and i want to say no and no i mean first of all it's really not obvious because let's face it even we got burned on the acr games yep. knowing that most likely there's collusion but we still keep playing because you want to believe that this is not happening. So it's not obvious. And even if it is obvious, it's not going to stop some people. And the other problem with, or at least the problem that I have with the idea of everybody's doing it and uh, it's obvious, the problem is that you're targeting the specific people who don't understand what's going on, right? So for those people, by definition, they have no clue that everybody is doing it and that, you know, something is going on. So you're basically targeting a kind of a weak link in the system. I think that's and the biggest point, targeting pros, exactly. Yes. And what you end up doing is you're targeting the people who the games really need to survive, right? Like those are, those are the type of people that, that poker needs to survive is people who are not sucking as much money as they can out of the game. And um, giving them a chance to play fairly is what sustains the games. Yeah. 
absolutely. So like long term, obviously it's it's a really bad decision to do what what is happening. But then who's going to think long term as a community if everybody's out there for themselves? You know, everybody's trying to make a buck right now. They're not going to think about, well, I need to do the right thing for for the industry so that 10 years from now, these games keep running. These games are going to be running, but they might be running somewhere else somehow in another way. You know, the games are not going to be dead. But what is happening right now, this is not sustainable. And there's going to be a you know, there's going to be some backlash for sure. I'm a little bit of, of an enigma when it comes to this. I'm such a weird character that I, uh, in at the 200-400 ACR tables, in chat, while these are going on, will tell the fish who's being targeted, hey, you know this game is only running around you and just piss off all of the other high-stakes ranks because it's just disgusting because I'm so tired of the second he stands up, everybody's sitting out the next orbit. I, the bum hunting, targeting, collusion culture that these games facilitate is not worth the extra EV. And I don't care if I'm pissing off high stakes European pros. No offense. I mean, I know you're included in that group to do this, but I mean, with guy, you, I, I, I've gotten in now at what's called them verbal spats or whatever with with Omaha for rolls and with Gravidas at these tables because I will literally tell the guy as he's sitting there. You're the only reason this game is running. Why are you playing here? Like you understand that you're just being specifically targeted by these bomb hunters who won't play the second you stand up. And I, I would rather somebody at least be aware of that. Mm. And I know the, the argument to that is, well, you know, they're choosing to sit down. It's their money. They know what they're getting themselves into. But the reality is, as you just said, it's not. They think they're sitting down into a much more fair environment than they really are if they don't understand the high stakes po- poker culture, these sort of um, unwritten agreements between players to to isolate who they consider as the fish and to get in lower variant spots with each other and um, things like that. I mean, it just isn't a fair game and it's not a fair environment. And mm-hmm. uh, I don't really care who I piss off because it, to me, I still don't consider that my world. I I, I think I have a slightly unique perspective on it just because I never considered myself a grinder, right? I skipped that entirely. I went from, uh, I played two, five live PLO and I, I took one big shot take one time at 2550, um, a few years ago. And I got it in good, pretty much all my all ins and lost four buy-ins in, um, over two consecutive days, which for me was a huge amount at the time in poker. And that was my one big poker shot take before this. And I just never have done the sort of grind a bankroll through poker thing, which makes me a lot less, makes me care a lot less about the feelings of other grinders uh, or of grinders in general, I think. And I just, yeah, uh, yeah I just, I, I don't know. There, there's something that always rubs me the wrong way about these guys who will only sit in games when they, they, they have a, a pure fish target to, to prey on. Mm. Yeah, I, I, see- Maybe that's the competitive spirit in me. I, I don't know. I just... I just be willing to battle. Like that's all I ask. Just be willing to battle. Right, right. And you know, let and let's actually talk about this a bit more. And before we get into the details, I want to say that you know, for many times and in, in, in many aspects of 
when the change is necessary, oftentimes you need an outsider to initiate the change. And like in this case, you are sort of an outsider because you skip that grinder phase, you know. Yeah. So you have a different perspective on um, the things like bump hunting. Yeah. Let's talk about the bump bum hunting because I don't think my perspective matches yours. And I want to have this discussion because I totally see your point. And, and I also don't tell want to be you, a huge hypocrite because obviously I played in the game where I was winning 180 big blinds, right? 100, right? So I, they're, they're, I, I'm fully aware of the hypocrisy of some of this. I think to me, I would just like to establish that the big difference is the awareness of the players in those games right, uh, right, right. as opposed to uh, I, I think that they're fully educated. I, I will sit there and tell them, hey, I'm going to crush you in this game. You know, this is, this is not a fair matchup before we play. As long as they're comfortable with that and still want to play, I think that's important. Yeah. All right. Well, let's talk about... Let me actually give you my perspective on why bum hunting is happening. Because I'm, in a way, part of the bum hunting culture. Because, you know, as you said, I'm one of those European high-stakes regs. And I would be sitting, open sitting at the tables uh, on Poker Stars whenever I'm playing. I, I would be just, uh, I would be just there, you know. And the way things are, there are two regs at the table. If a third reg joins, the sort of mutual agreement that we all have or mutual understanding is that either we play three-handed or one guy has to leave. Yep. You know, we, you're, you're not allowed to just sit three people at the table, wait for something to happen. All right. So here is a competitive aspect to it because basically you're playing who's the bigger you know, king of the mountain here in terms of if I'm allowed to sit, well, that's my competitive advantage. And in a way, obviously, we would play occasionally these three-handed and sometimes four-handed, just the regs. But the purpose of that is sort of measuring who's the bigger... Right. Who has the bigger balls in that situation, right? Because it's yep. not always that the best players are going to be the ones always sitting and controlling the tables. It's just the the people who are willing to keep fighting for their seat, yep. right? So that's where the competitive thing comes in. And, and in my perspective, that's pretty fair because you know what? If you don't like it, well, join us and we're going to play three-handed, right? And if we don't want to play three-handed, well, one of us is going to leave and you're going to be sitting and controlling the table and it's all fair, right? The, the reason why I think this is all fair is because the environment of online High-stakes poker, the legal sites, is different to a casino, a private game, or a poker app. Because let's say in a poker app, casino, or a private game, or especially a private game of any sort, you get a message, hey, game's starting, or you even know when the game is starting, right? And then there's all the politics, politics of who gets the seat, politics of who sells the bigger piece, politics yeah. of this and that, right? But the thing is, you know when the game is starting, I want to play, let's play, right? The reality of my world is I want to play, but instead of playing, I'm going to sit eight hours staring at an empty table. And when somebody joins, yeah, we play. And the reality is if, if a recreational player joins, even if he's not the worst player, but within 10 seconds, there's going to be a waiting list of 10 people yep. on, that, on that table because everybody's watching... Uh, that table and ready to jump on. Yep. But that is a pretty boring 
aspect of this business. I have to sit for eight hours. And sometimes I'm one of the guys who's sitting and looking at other people sitting at the table and I'm willing to jump in. But the problem with that is you have to be pretty lucky to get in because, well, you got to be looking at that table the moment the game starts because you blink and you miss it sort of thing, right? But the competitive aspect to it is fair, in my opinion, because, well, you fight for your right to sit at that table and, and that's all good. So the reason this is happening in the legal sites is because the game is not predictable. You don't know. You don't get the message from the recreational player. Hey, I want to play. I want to play with you. Let's let's start up the table. That's not going to happen. Right. You've earned your seat. Yeah. And sometimes you might sit for eight hours and there's no game. That's the reality. If we were in a situation where, hey, you know what? I'm going to fire up the table and I know within five minutes the game's going to start then I would be having more of a problem with the quote-unquote bound hunting situation, yep. what's, what's going on. But that's not the reality. You know, you have to wait and sit, et cetera, et cetera. And occasionally, once in a while, we have these long, multiple days battles between the regs, three or four guys who are basically measuring their strength against each yeah. other. I just, I just thought, should we try to keep it at least a bit clean so that I don't have to? But literally, uh, your show, right? Listen, so I mean, we. Yeah, I guess if we if we don't go too explicit, we don't. Um, we're gonna reach a bigger audience, and I think bigger audience is what we need here because people need to hear this thing. Because you know, before this conversation, I haven't, I haven't heard too many people openly talk about it. I mean, I had similar discussion about this with my friends privately, and everybody is outraged, but nobody wants to get it out on the public because, well, let's face it. It's bad for business. It's bad for business, right? Because you're going to piss a lot of people off, and I'm going to piss a lot of people off, and some of the doors are going to close, and some of the people, you know, it's part of it. It's going to happen, but whatever. At this stage, I don't care anymore because I'm really outraged about some of the things that are going on. and. I'm more outraged about the fact that if nobody talks about it, then that population of the poker players who are oblivious to this are never going to find out. And, and that's, that's what I have a problem with. Because like you said, if everybody knows what, what they're up against, well, sure, if you still want to take it, if you still want to go for it, go for it. Because I know I've game. been in yep. those shoes. You know, I've, I've been playing that stupid ACR game for way too long, way too long, <laughs> knowing that I, I literally, really, I, I can't do it because, well, it's just, it's, you know, it's, I can't, I shouldn't be doing this, but I kept doing it because of whatever reasons, because I, I believe the game is good and ego, et cetera, et cetera. But, yep. you know, it's my decision. At least I, well, I didn't know I had a suspicion, a very strong suspicion. And the reason I say I didn't know is because I didn't want to admit to myself that the suspicion is obviously true. And, um, and there's yeah. just no way to definitively prove it, right? That's Absolutely. always the issue with these yeah. things. Yeah. No, I, I completely agree. I think that the 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 point about earning your seat is very valid, especially on the public sites where there's not rampant collusion or anything like that going on, or where you know when a fish sits down, two of your buddies sit, and you're then specifically preying on that person, and it actually is a fair game. I, I, I completely agree. It's not like um, if I see you and Phil Galfon sitting at a table. I'm going to hop in there and just be like, hey, let's battle, right? Everybody, of course, who's playing poker is still looking for profitable spots or thinking mm. they're a winner. And I'm, I'm, I'm by no means trying to say 
I'm planting my flag. I'm going to take on all comers, regardless of whether I have an edge or not. Let's go to war. Um, I, I think your your point about earning your seat and that and thereby being the person who has the the right on quote unquote first dibs or or however you want to call it is is completely fair. I just get sick of the um, lengths that people go to to target these players when games start and things like that. Um, mm-hmm. I, I, that's something that I I will never do, have never done. If I'm in a game with you, let's play. There should be no. I'm not. I'm not ever trading a piece of myself to somebody I'm in a game with. I, I you know, you see that a lot, which I think is just absurd. Um, things like that. Like, I, there just should be nothing that that makes that that sets up a competitive imbalance when we're at mm-hmm. a table because there's just so many ways to exploit that that aren't fair to the players who don't know what's going on. Yeah. Um, which I know there was a lot of discussion a couple of years ago with these, the, the super high roller tournaments where players were doing that and things like that and, um, is another big issue in poker. I just think people are, keep looking for ways to set up competitive imbalances. And that to me is the big problem at these type of tables where you see the bum hunting. It's not, it's not the fact that regs don't want to just constantly smash their heads against each other. Um, which is obviously not sustainable either and will result in a, a, a hierarchy. It's just the way that the games are handled when they're, when they are running. Mm. Yeah. And, and I think what sets the environment for some of that unfairness that you're talking about is probably lack of traffic, right? Because if we compare let's say poker stars to ACR on poker stars, mm-hmm. like I said, a recreational player is going to join let's say if we're talking even 10K game, like PLO 10K, you're going to have a waiting list of whatever, a dozen people within seconds. So the reality of that is that there's no mutual agreements with every... I mean, I'm there to cut the throat of every single opponent that I have. I don't care who it is, even if it's, you know, because some of them I know personally, even if yep. it's my friend, well, you know what? That money is going to taste sweeter and I'm going to make make fun <laughs> about it. And they're going to do the same way, you know, send send me a picture yes. of a bottle of wine they bought for, you know, what what is perceived to be my money. And that's all fine because the same thing happens in the live games, right? You, you're going to yep. play with a lot of people that you know, you're close to, you, you're going to, you know, stack them for 50,000 and then you you know, go, go to a restaurant and you still make them pay for their dinner. Absolutely. <laughs> that kind of thing. Absolutely. But, uh, so, and it's all fine. But what makes it fair, at least in my perspective, I mean, maybe I'm delusional, but I think on Poker Stars, there's no opportunity for the regs to do something so well, out of line. It's a lot Be- harder. Well, it's, yeah, exactly. That's a lot harder because there are so many people waiting to jump in that yep. any sort of, and the game runs like whatever it's not even sometimes it's not running every day right? right so for for something to happen like what's happening on acr cuz on acr there's nine seats at that table right and very often it's like half an hour before the table fills in i mean if it's yep. not prime time it's half an hour and you're not going to have 12 people on the waiting list ever. Or, I mean, if you don't have one of the two major, if there's only, you know, semi-recreational players sitting, you might play five, six-handed for a while. Exactly. Uh, on there, where I've known for sure that in, in some of those six-handed games, 
two of the guys, if not three, are playing very soft against each other. Yeah. And why is this happening? Because they, you know, they can just always get the seat. And yep. good luck doing that on, on poker stars, you know? Yep. Because the 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 real the reality of it is if you're not the quickest to join the table, forget about you're it. Luck, and yeah. and the reason why we have like 12 people or six people on the waiting list instead of 50 is because there is no point to join the waiting list after you're the fifth already on on that or, or yeah, the seventh, you're just never you know? getting in. You're just yeah. never even trying it, right? So the reality of it is it if everybody actually who wants to play that game would join the waiting list, it might be like 30, 40 people. But they're not joining because of what's the point? I mean, right. just just to be on the waiting list? I mean, come on, right? Because you know what's going to happen. Like maybe three people from the waiting list get into the game and the game breaks. And that's that's about it. Yep. I, I completely agree. And I think that's, that is a, a very, very valid point about the difference in sites and traffic um, and, and set up for that, the, the way people play against each other. Um, yeah. Yeah. And I, I don't have a solution. I don't know if there is a, a solution um, to that. Neither do I, because you know what? Some people thought that the solution is let's keep games private. Because you see, like, for example, you know, even some of the casinos basically have an open game, but in reality, it's really private. Yeah. If you're not on cool. the list, you're not getting in, right? That's what I was playing in all last summer. Absolutely. Yeah. And from one perspective, and I've played these games myself as well, and I can't complain about it because, well, it's pretty sweet to be on that list. You know, it's, <laughs> it's a great deal. You're always thankful for that. And it's good fun. And you know why this is happening because, well, let's face it, if you select the right kind of people, the game is going to be more fun. There's going to be great conversation. It's going to be a lot of fun for everyone. Everybody wants to come back the next day. For the people who game, came there to just have fun, have a you know, a day off away from their families, away from their problems, away from their uh, work, they're going to enjoy it way more than they otherwise would. Yeah, if if those uh, private games are there, then is it a good solution? Like, where's the fairness? Because like some boring whiz kid who tried his best to become a great poker player He's never getting into those games, you know. Not a he, chance. He can play online all he wants, and, uh, and that's all fine. But those games he's not getting into. Is it fair or is it not? I, I don't know. From one perspective, you want to say, well, listen, you know, it's not for everyone. Same as not everybody can play basketball. If you're, you know, if you're <laughs> five foot six, well, you, you have no chance. And I'm sorry, you know, you can watch NBA if you want to. Or play basketball on PlayStation. That's that's your kind of closest you're going to get to NBA, right? Maybe it's the same with poker, some of those private games. You know, you don't have personality. Well, I'm sorry, but, you know, it's just not, not happening. Or a, a deep bankroll that you're willing to lose. Per, personality or be a fish. It's one of those two, right? Yeah, or be a fish or, or be a degen. Yeah. You know, because some of the... Even some of the rec uh, some of the professional players are really welcome in those games because you know that there might be a day when he just snaps and he just goes on a complete monkey tilt and spews off half a million to somebody. And he's going to be fine with it. He's going to be like, yeah, whatever. It happens to me, you know, full moon. And it'll be and worth whatever. it in the long run. Yeah, yeah. 
So I, I mean, I really, I hope I don't get, I, I, I hope I should have checked with him before I went into any of these stories because he, he has just been such a good guy, but I, he's one of the only people that I feel comfortable talking about in this context. So I'll, I'll give you a, a Ben Lamb story on this exact mm-hmm. thing. I, I mean, he, I think one of the reasons that he's invited as such a crusher to these games and is able to do so well is, is not just the fact that, that he is a genuinely good guy um, and has a good personality, but because he is willing to give that exact action you're talking about. Ben um, literally has a second personality that at some of these private games, after a few drinks, he'll turn his cap backwards and become an entirely different person with its own nickname. And I, I have seen Ben buy into a 50K cap game for 1.5 million and just pull it out and, and put it on the table and go, fuck it, we're playing anybody in a pot with me. There's no cap. Let's go, whatever happens. And, you know, he's just one of those guys who's willing, who's willing to do that. And, and, and you have certain pros who, uh, who don't mind. They know that, that they're a good player and they're going to be winning in the long run. And, um, you know, he's exactly what you're talking about. He, he's, he's completely comfortable going off uh, on a night. And um, that'll certainly get you, get you invited back and make people a lot more comfortable playing with you because at least you know there's a chance of winning it back compared to somebody who uh, is always going to play by the book or knit it up or, you know, really be a quote-unquote professional. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And plus, if you're there for entertainment, well, that's pretty entertaining. Yeah. It was pretty, it, I, you know what I, I have to say, I, I, uh, I've seen a lot of things at these games, but, um, yeah, when he bought when when he bought in for a million and a half, I was, uh, even, even I, I paused for a second Wait, I'm sorry, you, for how much <laughs> you're, you're in for what tonight? Oh, okay. Yeah. Oh, well. And you know what the, the funny thing is that, I mean, we talk about these things and we've seen a lot of stuff happen in these games. But before I first got into that scene, I had no idea any of this is happening. Literally no idea. Yeah, you just sort of hear rumors about it, right? Like you, you sort of, you hear people mention private games or, um, you know, there's an article every once in a while written in, in uh, well, now I guess it would be on whatever online blog it is, but about uh like private Hollywood games where these actors play against each other mm-hmm. for ridiculous amounts of money. And you just, you never, you never really know the tangibility there uh, and what, what the, what the reality is. But um, I, I agree. I think most people don't understand how real and, and prevalent they are. Yeah. Yeah. And Molly's game, the movie definitely lifted the curtain up a bit on some of the aspects of it. You know, it's a, it's a very clean version of what's happening. And uh, isn't that ironic? Like, uh, how often is the Hollywood version the the cleaner, tame version <laughs> yeah. of the reality? Right? Yeah. Like, that's that's I, I've had to explain that to people who would go, "Oh, you know, is it kind of like Molly?" I'm like, "Yeah, but that's they really had to tame it down for the movie." Yeah, yeah, that's that's exactly what happened there. I, we we fortunately over the last year, I've got some some fun experiences, and again, I, I sort of still consider myself a bit of an outsider. And I think a lot of the times that I was invited to these games was to be preyed on. Um, so I, I feel less guilty or obligated to keep things private than I think yeah. others would. For example, the short tech private games that I played, um, I, pseudo private games that I played last year after winning 
you know, the short deck bracelet and, and doing really well in the cash games after that. Um, I got invited to one of the, the short deck games in Bobby's room and spiked it pretty big there. And, and then they invited me to start playing in the more controlled, controlled private games. And I think I was clearly being targeted in those, but there's so much variance that, um, it's both harder to tell. And it's one of those things like you were talking about with the ACR games, you know, you're being targeted, but there's so much variance and you don't think everybody's that good or too egotistical that you're going to sort of play anyway. Um, looking back, I realized that there's no way I, I, I should have been in some of those games. They had, you know, three of the, the, the six guys, me being one of the six. So three of the other five had solvers, um, for the game that that's, privately built solvers that they were using in a game where um, I was essentially just clicking buttons. And, um, you know, that's my fault for putting myself in, in those positions. But so some of those games we were playing with were some of the more interesting characters in poker. Um, we were playing a $200 ante, I believe it was $200 ante, 600 on the button, short deck PLO, which is just some of the most extreme variants possible in poker. And that was with, um, guys like Jake Schindler and Sam Soverell, um, and Jonathan Deppa and those guys. And I, I've got to tell you the, the, the Sam Soverell experience up close and personal is really one of the most entertaining things in poker I have ever seen. We were playing in a game with Sean Winter and this was in the back of Aria and Sam had a room service tray and, uh, Sean, had just put in a very large, I think he jammed river in, in a spot. Sam checked and, and Sean jams river and in what's a 60 K pot. He, he probably pots it to go all in for another 30,000. And, and, and Sean gives you one of, one of these, right? So that Sam can't get anything. Cause Sam's a total live pro and will try to get any read he can. So Sean turtles up like this and Sam's talking to him, talking to him, can't get anything goes, you know what? All right, Sean, you deserve it. Reaches behind him off the tray, takes a Tabasco bottle, one of the mini Tabasco bottles, and lobs it into the pot, smashes all the chips in the middle of the pot. Oh, man. Sam was like this with his hand oh, and goes, man. fuck, you got it. And drops a shirt and says, fuck, you got it. And everybody just is like staring dumbfounded, right? There's 60,000 in the middle. Oh, man. And nobody knows what to do. And there's like 30 seconds of just complete ruckus after the silence. Like there's this really awkward pause. Nobody knows what to do. And then Sean gets super bad. And Sam goes, no, no, no. I was going to call anyway. And everybody else is chiming in for their opinion. And in the end, Sam turned over his hand and tried to claim that, look, my hand was so good. I was going to call anyways. And they wouldn't give him the pot. And they say, you're a fucking asshole for doing something like this. Like you're absolutely not allowed to win the pot. Your hand's dead and, and, and Sean got the pot. And that's among friends. Like they do this stuff mm-hmm. for fun. They know each other really well. I mean, there's just, I want to, not to write. I mean, Sam just makes the best fucking stories. This is a story that he told that other people verified. I, I unfortunately didn't get to witness this one in, in person. This was another spot where, Somebody else's, he's in the tank on a river. Somebody else has put chips in the middle. He wads up a piece of bread from whatever plate he's eating on and chucks it at the guy. Balls up a piece of bread and hits the guy in the face with it. He, he's facing down a bet. 
the guy stutters and goes, oh, you know, what do you, what do you do? You can't, why are you throwing that at me? Right. Sam goes, I call thinking that the reaction from the guy, if he had a real hand would be like, dude, what the fuck? Mm-hmm. You know, he'd be just annoyed and, and calm. But if he's feeling super anxious and bluffing, he's going to stammer. Sam calls and nobody does anything like ah, some of the, the, the things that these, these guys do are just insane to me. And I mean, to him, it's, I think all just fun and games. Um, and if anybody really would have been like, no, you can't do that. He probably would have consented. Um, but yeah, I mean, some of the the stuff that we see in these games is, is ridiculous. I mean, we, we, Anthony in Ivy's room during one of the sessions shredded probably three decks over the course of two hours. And you just, you're in a public casino, right? I mean, you're just not supposed to be just on any bad beat, picks up the deck and just starts ripping cards and throwing them around the room. <laughs> and you, you just see these things that, that should not exist in the areas that they're happening. Mm. Uh, but it's, it's certainly entertaining. It's uh, it's, it is fun to be around. Yeah. Yeah, and there's definitely a case that, you know, some of the things that are allowed at the high-stakes area would get you a ban uh, anywhere else. And that's sort of unfortunate, but at the same time understandable because kind of yeah. the people at the table know that, you know, some, some bullshit like this might be happening, like shredding the deck, you know? Yep. And, and, and you know, you know, if you're playing with Anthony, that's probably what you might see at some point the, <laughs> during the night. If you're playing with Sam, then... Uh, you never know. You just hope that you're not on the receiving receiving end on some of his uh, little tricks. Yeah, and it is entertaining. Up. It is entertaining, and um, you know. I mean, I've, I've certainly gotten my, in, into my share of try. Uh, this actually, for whatever reason, well, I shouldn't say for whatever reason, for got me some some credibility in some of the the high stakes games. But um, we, I had a situation in one of the private games in LA last year that I, I ended up just punching a guy right in the face, um, at the table. And, uh, you know, these things just can, can end up happening. This was a gentleman who, um, I had made a side bet with months previous, uh, at a game. Um, I won said side bet. He afterwards tried to back out of the bet, um, saying, Oh, you know, I had been drinking, um, uh, basically the bet was that I had to be up at a certain amount by the end of the night. Mm. Right. And we had set, um, a limit saying I can't play past 4am, meaning I can't just chase indefinitely. Right. I ended up quitting at about two 30 and he said, Oh no, you, you had to play till four. And I get, no, of course, the four o'clock rule was the exact opposite context. We made the bet when I was stuck, we gave my, me a limited amount of time to win the money back. Not that I had to quit. That, that wouldn't make any sense that I, the way, you know, his side of the argument was essentially the inverse. The rule was put in place for the opposite. It wasn't a play and tell. It was, I could only play and tell a certain amount of time to win the bet. He knew that he was considered, you know, one of the game starters in those games and, and had a lot more credibility than I did and had a lot more relationship. And he, the way he handled that over the next few months was to really rub that in my face and just sort of mockingly be like, well, I'm never paying you. Uh, because I know that I'm, I'm going to pretend there's a reason, but really I know I can get invited if I don't pay you. So go fuck yourself mm-hmm. type that. Oh, so sorry. So, uh, go F yourself for the, the, the YouTube 
polite version. So uh, he showed I up in one of the games. <laughs> yeah. So he showed up months after of doing this to me for months at one of the games and intentionally sat immediately next to me and proceeded to just be a douchebag um, for, for really the whole night, just trying to needle me and, and be as much of an ass as he could. Really just one of those guys who um, enjoyed the fact that I couldn't do anything about it because I was privileged to be there and it's his right to be there as a loser. He ends up hugely slow rolling me in what was a large pot. And I was stuck on the session. I was down pretty significant, probably, I think 50 or 60,000. And he slow rolls me in a $50,000 pot on the river that he got very, very lucky to get there. We get all in on the turn. He doesn't show his hands. I have the nuts and like a gutter comes in, uh, like the Broadway gutter comes in. Uh, I, I had like top straight already. Um, and I think a Broadway gutter came in and, and, and he gives one of those, Oh my God, like I knew you had it. Blah, blah. And like, you know, gets super upset and just draws it out as long as he possibly can. And once the dealer has already pushed me the pot, just sort of sets his hand down and somebody else is like, Oh, you know, you have, you have Broadway. He goes, Oh my God, I have Broadway. I'm so sorry. Like, I, I didn't see it. And I, and he was standing, he stood up to, he goes, Oh, I stands up. I just stood up and knocked him out. Um, and unfortunately for me, one of his close friends is an Israeli special forces vet. Um, and I think that's probably the closest I've ever been to death. I've been in a pretty bad ATV accident before in my life, but this gentleman, um, basically said, you know, if I hadn't played with you for so long and, I didn't personally know the backstory to this. I, I, you were, you were done. Like this, nobody would, and nobody would have cared. You're in a private game and we would have made up a story. Like you are very lucky that I think you're a good guy. And, and we've had some, had some good times before, because if, if I, I consider the gentleman who you did this to a brother, and if, if we didn't have our history, you, you would just be out. <laughs> and that was probably the, the closest I've ever gotten to real, real trouble in one of these private games. But I mean, there's only so much you can take. This guy was a piece of shit for so long that I, at this point I felt it was pretty deserved. Oh man. I can just imagine the situation that <laughs> for somebody observing that, this at the table as a neutral, you know, your fellow oh, players, yeah. they're just looking at this whole ordeal, oh, yeah. you know, the, the big sl slow roll. And then somehow the big slow roll doesn't end up being the talking point of the day. Yeah, because, no, there was a yeah, uh, lot flips of out and, <laughs> oh, man. There, there was a lot of disbelief, especially because I mean, I'm not, I'm not really considered a, a ruckus maker in these games. I got to sort of keep my cool and be happy to be there. This was, this was a little bit out of character, but he had, right. it, 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 it uh, had been a long time coming. Right. <laughs> there's only there's only so many buttons you can push i guess i don't know he had he had been serious if i was if you know if i was winning he picked a bad time i had, i was buried i was pissed off my patience had worn thin yeah don't worry about it everybody's doing it it's it's fine <laughs> that's that's say it like yeah that. as a guest it's probably not something i want to get in the habit of doing and it was made very clear mm -hmm. to me afterwards that this is my one and only uh physical altercation at the tables yeah and it should be because you know what i mean obviously some people have a shorter fuse some people have a longer fuse but the reality is you have to 
you know, in the environment that we're in, you kind of have to keep keep your cool because one of the things, and I'm not saying specifically about your situation because I see a lot of justifications that can be made. Still, I don't think that was the best decision you ever made, but reality is you didn't make a decision. You just you just fucking stood up and punched him, right? You probably thought about it a bit later, but that is an unfortunate aspect of some of the games because like, when you see somebody who is a, an aggressive character, because you know, some of the recreational players are going to be more on an aggressive side, especially after a few drinks, you know. And then, yes, they are. And sometimes you don't know if they're kidding or if they're for real. You know, so some of the situations get uncomfortable, and that's unfortunate because, you know, if you're there to have fun, sometimes some of those get guys, by being a bit too aggressive and obnoxious, kill all the fun. I agree. And it's probably, it's something I, I wish I had kept my cool for. Um, but at the same time, it was just, it was one of those, I have no repercussions in this scenario. Like you're just going to mm. keep being an asshole to me forever in the moments. It was, this is the only thing I can really do to, to, to stand up for myself because I am, I, I am the lowest ranking person here, really. Like you, you're just going to keep abusing the fact that you can say and do whatever you want to me indefinitely. Mm-hmm. And this was my way of showing that, that, that I wasn't going to tolerate that. I wish I had come up with a better way of doing so, but in the, in the moment, in, in the heat of the moment, that was my, that was my logic. Mm-hmm. All right. Listen, let's move on. Let's talk about Triton. I want to hear your stories about Triton. Triton was, what happens when you run it up seven figures in two months in poker and then are a habitual shot taker. Um, so then it was, what is the next level of shot taking? And that happened to be Triton. I was smart enough to somehow I found people willing to buy my action for that. And which I I shouldn't say, I, I actually did a lot of study and I think I put myself in a de- decent position for it. What I was not prepared for for Triton was the pure level of wealth there. Uh, I had never seen that in a poker event. We're talking about 50,000 euro to 100,000 euro buy-ins. So I played um, two 25,000 euro events, a 50,000 euro event, and a 100,000 euro event. The way that the people who play these events are, with short tech specifically, um, similar to PLO, is it's very beneficial to build up a big stack. The, the preflop equity runs so close that as you get near to a bubble, um, if you have a stack, you, you have more in value than your chips are worth because people are going to play very passively back against you. So the way that these super rich, super elite people have approached this is to just jack up the variance as high as possible early, early stages and fire six, seven bullets if they so please. I had no idea that this was going to be the case going into these events. Um, and it, it is very hard to play when people are willing to get in with 44, 45% consistently preflop every time you really have to run incredibly well to make any sort of profit. And, and I was not prepared to fire, um, that many bullets. And I think it was a, a hugely losing spot to be in overall, almost playing an entirely different game than them. Um, what I had studied for and prepared from a theoretical point of view to play solid, fundamental, short deck tournament poker 
was irrelevant when I was getting four bet jammed on plus a call. Like, you know, you're going to, I'm going to four bet jam and get called twice by somebody who's going to be ecstatic to get it in there with Jack nine suited. And somebody's going to be ecstatic to get it in there with King queen. Um, and it was just, it was like nothing I had ever seen. Um, from the, the actual tournament perspective. And I, I promptly punted a substantial amount of money in spots that I, I, that I genuinely regret doing. Um, the experience side of it was amazing, but the poker side of it was brutal. Mm. Yeah. I mean, it's, it makes you think, cause I, I've had this discussion with, you know, some people recently all the solvers and the game plan, et cetera, et cetera. You know, you, you think you're studying for something, but then you can be easily put in, in a game where that won't mean anything. Because, yeah, people right. are willing to, to make the six, seven, eight shots. So, sure, your edge, theoretically, is great. You should be happy to be in that situation because, hey, let's face over it. Over infinite you know, runs. <laughs> yeah, over infinite runs. But the reality is that you're going to have to get really, really, really lucky to, to get anywhere there, uh, which is fine because, of course, so like your overall EV of being there shoots up you're right. you're winning more than you're supposed to but you're not win- winning very often right very very rarely the times you do win you're you you win huge but you're probably only profiting um you know 10% of the time or something in those spots i mean you just have mm-hmm. to have a, a perfect you have to bink one of the early all ins and then and then hold in a couple big spots I and mean, it's just very hard to get there when other people are willing to fire essentially infinitely Mm. Um, and I, I really was, was in no way prepared, um, for right. that, but, but the experience of a Triton event itself as someone who had watched them on stream and, you know, has seen these players to be, to be sitting at a table with Linus Love, for example, was just, you know, a really cool experience or, or true teller who I think I probably consider just the best poker player in the world currently, um, mm. overall playing all the games. I, I just, I, I know, um, there's some debate about that and, and uh, Matthew's really high up there and, and stuff like that, but I, he's certainly on the very short list and, and sitting at a table with him in a game that he is, let's be honest, just purely better than me at was a really interesting experience. Um, mm. It certainly wasn't worth the price of admission, but mm. it was still very interesting. Uh, and all the after stuff was really cool. Um, we talked about this, I think a little bit, before we, we started recording, but uh, what a lot of people didn't realize is, is at these events, you have the entire Triton schedule that's published and streamed and broadcast that they build the events around. And then you have an entire second week of tournaments that are not marketed to the public that are for more or less private invite tournaments for the, the Asian gentlemen where um, they're in public businesses that they've made their money off. And it would look very bad if they were gambling for these amounts of money, but they want to come and do battle. Um, And these are essentially behind the scenes, private high stakes tournaments um, that a lot of people don't even know exist. um, And will never know exist. um, Well, now they will know. (laughs) Who are listening, but I think a lot of people who watch, watch those streams will just have no idea about um, that are catered towards successful Asian businessmen who um, aren't comfortable having it known that they're gambling. Uh, and that, that was really interesting to see. There was uh, 
one of the this was trite in London. So um, the, the secondary casino there was Lace Ambassadors, which is where they shot Casino Royale. And they were filming uh, a couple games with, you know, durs in, in the games and things like that. And it was really cool to see the behind behind the scenes of that. I mean, I, you know, watching I, I grew up watching the poker shows, watching Durr and stuff like that. Now, having having gotten to meet him, that all that still seems very surreal uh, mm. to be at tables with with those guys playing. Um, I mean, we're talking about game selection earlier. How about JRB? I mean, what an absolute legend that guy is. He was sitting in in a POO game that I would have comfortably cut my left arm off to be in. I think they were playing 1,000, 2,000. Um, and I would guess, and you know, I, I don't think this is a controversial statement. I'm sure JRB has no idea who I really am, although we've debated wine a few times back and forth because he has very poor taste, but pretends that he has great taste and sorry, JRB, I've told you this to your face. So I, you know, I feel comfortable saying it on stream, um, or, or on, on the podcast. Um, but he was in a game that he was considered the best player in that game. And I would sit JRB infinite in PLO, um, as I think most people who play PLO in the world would. And he was at a, a, a six, a full six handed 1000, 2000 table where he clearly was the best player at the table. And I mean, just to be able to get spots like that, what are you, whew, you're doing, you're doing a lot of things right in life yeah. to this. And you're talking, you're, you know, you're upstairs at, 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 on the second level of Lace Ambassadors Casino with Durr and the high stakes crew filming on one table and, and JRB playing in a game with a million dollar, a, a PLO game with a million dollars on the table in the other game. And I don't know, it's just a very surreal environment to walk through and experience as a poker player. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. And plus, it's not an environment that a lot of people think about, you know, because oftentimes we get bogged down into our little world of, you know, the online poker, the way it is, or or the little tournaments, you know, your local casino game. And the fact that the game selection is one of the most crucial aspects to success Oh yeah. at that level, you know, when you're playing for millions of dollars, it is obvious. Whereas at the lower stakes, it's not obvious, but it's still the same. The same principle applies. It's just, you know, people are worse at it. And that's, that's just the reality. And I think there's just still, especially in our game, right, in PLO, there's just a lot of delusion. Um, it is so easy to think you're just playing at a different level than you are. So many people, because of the variance involved, simply think they're good players. And I would mm. use not I, I won't use names or anything like that, but but making the 25k PLO final table last year. A lot of people in my circles gave that credibility, right? That to me, to, to as a, a in terms of public facing, to some somehow that meant that I was now officially a good PLO player. Because I, you know, I'd made the final table of what at the time was probably one of the hardest PLO tournaments ever, uh, given that field. And the reality is that means nothing. Success in that tournament is just a purely lucky bink, right? I ran maybe 15 handed, 16, somewhere in the teens left, um, Queen Jack 10-9 double suited into aces for absolute heaps. And one, I took a high variance line and, and I 
um, three bet the under the gun open with queen jack 10, nine double suited. And, uh, you know, he had aces and, and, and jams and we ran it and I got fortunate enough to win that stack and big, a big build a big stack approaching huge ICM pressure spots and was able to push, push that through to what ended up being, you know, a $370,000 score or something like that. Um, that by no means meant that I was a good PLO player. And I think there's these big variant spots in PLO like that all the time where you can trick yourself into thinking you're a good player, um, even more than, than no limit or, or other forms of poker, um, certainly, especially mm. mixed games. And I think that just, that, that comes up a lot. Um, and I think that that's a way that people use game selection. You use an excuse for their game selection. They don't, they don't value game selection as much because they've been winning. Right. Mm. They, they, they consider themselves a winner in the lineup based on results. Even if the reality is you're not a winner in that lineup, you've just been running hot. And I think right. that's a very tough thing for people to objectively look at and why some people uh, are, are not valuing game selection or just actively bad at it. Mm. Yeah. And especially because it's in general human nature in any game to attribute the success results wise to your skill right and sort of write off all the all the bad parts all the losing sessions on on it just being being luck right yep. and and you being unlucky and uh it's just normal it's human nature and of course in plo that the fact that the variance is so high compared to some other games then you get a chance to write off your losses much easier and when you're winning, and you're gonna have sessions where you win like 20 buy-ins or something, and you're gonna always remember them for the rest of your life, saying, "Oh, you know what? No, I'm actually a pretty good player." Like that day, I run the way I'm supposed to run. <laughs> yeah. I crushed it. I cleaned it <laughs> exactly. up. Exactly. You know. And in general, I'm a very unlucky guy. Like in yep. general, like 80% of the time, I lose my flips. Yeah, I'm the, that kind of guy. But when things go good, then I'm winning 20 buy-ins. And how many people have this sort of narrative for themselves? A lot. Way too much. And in general, in poker, too many people focus on the results way too much. You know, you don't yes. see it at the higher stakes uh, community because people understand variance much right. better. They've been through it. So they don't measure their success in terms of uh, results. They still strive to get the results. They still you know, see the success or the failure in terms of results, but they don't measure their game based on how they're doing results. Yeah, there's a much, there's much more awareness of the actual factors that go into the results. Yeah. The, the lack of awareness, what what we were talking about in terms of um, the results oriented perception uh, is just going back to that, that 25 K PLO tournament is I, I would have had a hard time selling action probably even at even at even money going into there. I didn't try, but I, I would assume that it would have been difficult. I, I was never really approached by many people to buy. And literally just on one tournament success after that, I was able to sell for the next PLO Masters, the, for the PLO tournaments, the next Master Series for high rollers at 1.25, which is just ludicrous. I mean, that's just an absolute absurd markup for a field like that. And, and it's pure, it was purely off of, oh, you final table the 25K PLO. You know, you, you must be a great PLO player. And it, nothing to do with the study or, or asking about, you know, my my recent results in, in other things or anything like that. And I, I think that just is very much the public perception of a poker player mm-hmm. is 
if you have good results, you're a good player. And if you don't, you must not be a good player. Um, and Pilo really, I, I think, playing that over no limit hold'em where um, variance makes up for edges over such a huge sample size, it becomes very easy to fall into that trap. Yeah, absolutely. We saw that. We saw that with the Galphon challenge, right? Where, oh yeah. Where where he got down to Venny? I mean, just what nine hundred thousand or whatever it was, yeah. and even experienced poker players were saying he should probably quit. This is clearly a, a mine, a, a losing venture. He is obviously the worst player, uh, and he's punting equity in the long run, and he should just buy out. And then Phil went on to make a post saying, you know, I hear everybody saying that I'm clearly a loser. Uh, I don't really think that's true. I, I still have confidence in myself. I, I think I would like to keep playing. I enjoy the challenge and think I do it. And, you know, a million dollar upswing later and shipping the challenge. And it's just, yeah, I, I, you just can never be, um, I think, too under results oriented. Yeah. Uh, Absolutely. And it was funny, actually, to, to me, because when Phil took his break, right, right around when he lost the 900 and he was considering mm -hmm. whether he's coming back or not. And I remember I made a post on 2 plus 2 just before they restarted. I think just before they restarted. I might be wrong. Maybe they already restarted. But anyway, I made a post uh, saying that well, basically saying something along the lines that too many people just write Phil off and say that, you know, he's completely outclassed. I don't see it myself. It's just variance. Right. You know, there's yada, yada. So I went on saying that basically it's inconclusive to me. It's still anything can happen. You know, I don't agree with people who say that Phil is outmatched. Uh, and I got so much stick for that. <laughs> I didn't expect it because right. so, so many people got really angry with me, just like, oh, you know, you, you're just saying it for whatever reason, even though they couldn't quote the reason. I don't have any agenda there. I just voiced my opinion. Yep. And I was getting so much stick of like, yeah, you know, this is bullshit. You just don't want to admit that Vinny is a better player. And I'm thinking, guys, I publicly said to everyone, Vinny is a friend of mine. It would yeah. be the easiest thing in the world for me to say he's a better player. You know, because he's a friend of mine. But, you know, it was it was ridiculous. Like how, you know, not everybody, but there were people who were rich, literally like quite aggressive uh, against it. Like saying like, wow, this is bullshit. You know, you know, just. It's amazing. Fine. I wonder what people's motivation for that was. Like, why? Exactly. Why are you so, I don't know, adamant that 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 on a what is considered a very small sample size for heads up PLO, he just must be the worst player. Yeah, um, because he's he's losing and now to be fair i do think we could both agree that early in the challenge he was getting outplayed on certain spots he had oh, a very poor strategy in some very specific scenarios um you know like his blocker bets out of position on rivers were just getting it completely exploited they were they were unbalanced and he ha he did have some tangible adjustments that he had to make um mm -hmm. But to say that he was just overall the worst player and this could never, he was just going to for sure continue losing um, was outrageous at the time. Yeah. Uh, we were well within in the, the realm of variance. And it does. It just shows even among good players and experienced players, how results oriented people still are. Mm. Uh, and it, it, I think it, it goes back to what you said. It's just everybody wants to believe when you're winning, it's because of what you're doing. And when you're losing, it's because of luck. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. On one hand, EV charts 
are amazing, right? They give you something to look at and go, ah, you know what? I'm not playing terribly. I should be winning. My all in adjusted EV says I should be winning this much. I must be playing well. But on the other hand, they're also sort of a curse because they give you an excuse. It's like, well, I know I'm losing money, but I should be winning money. So therefore I must be a good player as opposed to, well, maybe your EV charts are really high because you got all in on a couple cooler flops where you just happen to have the best of it. Uh, I, I think those can be a very convenient excuse for people riding the, I'm a good player train because of my results. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I, I talked a lot about the dangers of the EV graphs and I used to suffer from it myself. Well, I say suffer. I, I had a problem with, with the graphs. I want to say like some eight years ago, I was one of those guys who would be sending their graph to all of the friends and yep. saying, look, look, this is ridiculous. Like 100 binds under AV, I'm the unluckiest guy. Reality, nobody cares. They shouldn't. And I, I still do that and nobody cares. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. I am that guy. I, I'll right. probably send you a graph after this conversation. Awesome. Awesome. We'll, we'll use it as a thumbnail. <laughs> but, you know, but coming back to the graphs, even though I don't have a problem with the graphs, or at least so I say, now that I think about it, I had a problem with the graph. And that problem was ACR. I probably played a bit too long on ACR because I looked at my graph and I looked at my EVBB per 100 and I was yep. saying to myself, well, listen, I'm making double-digit win rate here on paper. It's not the reality. I'm in the red. But on paper, I'm crushing it. On paper, you know, I'm, I'm really rich in terms of EV. I remember a friend of mine said uh, once that, hey, Last time I checked, I can't pay the rent with EV. <laughs> <laughs> if only. Yeah. So, you yeah, see, that, yeah, that, so that, that story is a little too too close to home for me. I've uh, I've spent a couple months doing that exact same same justification. Because mm. it's from one perspective, it's like, yeah, well, it's a good metric, but is it? Especially if if the game is not fair, it's it's a horrible metric because it right. gives you a false sense of security and uh, you know it's just bad anyway let's um let's move on to something a bit more positive because i want to talk about your initiative uh that you're starting up for run it once and i i really think it's it's a great thing that you're doing so go ahead and tell us thank you yeah i guess this is one of one of the the reasons that i am both here and and am now have gone from uh no social media and and about as unpublic facing as possible to um, wanting to be a little bit more involved in the poker community and, and sort of get my name out there and um, be a little bit more, more public facing is um, I have, I have started for run at once poker and not in direct partnership with them just as my own initiative, um, a stable where I am staking players to play specifically on run at once. And the reason that I'm doing that is um, a number of things that we discussed earlier in the conversation about um, just what the future, the positive future of online poker might require. Um, and I think Run It Once is, is just doing that so much better than anybody else at this point um, with the protocols they have in place for the good of players and purely for the good of players, not because it's more profitable or anything like that. Um, Phil, I've been lucky enough to be, I mean, he, he as a PLO player, he was, you know, essentially I, 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 just a childhood idol. I'll, I'll just 
put it that way in context, growing up and watching him on poker after dark and stuff. I just thought he was incredible. And then, um, to be able to be lucky enough to learn from him to the point that I directly profited so much from what I had learned from one at once training and then to meet him and be able to become friends with him. Um, we had lunch at a point last year and I said, Hey, I'm sure you get this all the time, but if there's anything that I could do to give back or help out, I really do genuinely owe a lot of my success to things that you've directly created. Um, please let me know. And, um, with run at once being not available to us players, there wasn't really anything I could do at the time. I sort of moderated on the channel for his challenges and stuff like that, but there wasn't really any opportunities. And then in a, in a very casual conversation, when he was coming back to Vegas, he told me that traffic had dipped unexpectedly in May as quarantine had ended on the site. And that, uh, after they had been doing really well, traffic had started to go down a bit. And I sort of, you know, naively said, well, what if I could help with that? I could get players on the site. And he goes, I mean, obviously getting players on the site would great, but you're in the U S I don't know how you could do that. I said, I don't know if this is allowed or anything that you think would be beneficial, but, um, you know, could we, could I stake players to play on the site? Um, and, and to me, that was just a, I guess uh, I, I don't want to take all the credit. Um, certainly, a mutual idea that we had that that if I, I that staking I, that staking players on the site would be a benefit um, to it. And to me, that that's that's the most effective way on a dollar's point that I could really um, give back and positively contribute to. This sounds very. Hopefully I don't just sound like a, a naive optimist, but positively give back to the future of online poker. Like I, I just think the better run it once does and the better a site that is doing things the right way does, the better it is for everyone in the long run. And this isn't, isn't um, a hugely expensive endeavor. It turns a lot of people onto the site that I think will have a long-term benefit. Who knows? Some of them might even end up being winning players and that would be really cool. But um, mostly it's just to get activity and attention on there in the limited ways that I, I am able to. Right. And I mean, beyond just helping run it once um, in a really nice way, you're also, you, you have a potential to help somebody kickstart their career. Which that would also be is such awesome. A, yeah. Exactly. Right. I, it, it would be amazing to get... I, I very selfishly am hoping that we get one or two stories out of this, right? Mm -hmm. Where it's like, Hey, I, this gave me the opportunity to take my shot at full-time poker and escape the lower level rate trap. And, um, you know, because of this opportunity, I ended up realizing my, my dream of playing poker. That, that would be, you know, just so cool down the road to have one of those stories come out of this. I'm, I'm, cautious that that's still a very hard thing to have happen, but that would be great. So what specifically we're, we're offering, and if um, just if you want to check out, um, it is on on my posted on my Twitter that I made just for this. I've never had social media before starting this endeavor. It's uh, Thalo Poker, as, as simple as, as that sounds. Um, what we're offering and what I'm offering is um, I, we will stake someone on run at once and either you don't have to be new to the site. Um, but if you are, that's phenomenal. Cause we we're trying to increase activity there for, um, we'll, we'll 50%. So you have to put up 50% of yourself and we'll put up 50%, but, 
if you're new to the site, you automatically get 75% of the profits. Um, if you're an existing player on the site, you start off with 66% of the profits. Um, and then if you end up being even a break, even or a profitable player, we will immediately increase that after your first 5,000 hands to 75%. So basically anybody who is, is profitable, um, or new, you can, you can get 75% of the profits with only 50% of the risk. Um, and you know, it's not a, it's not this unbelievable money giveaway. I'm not pretending like I'm treating this like a charity, but um, I'm hoping that it does give access to players who normally wouldn't play as well as incentivize people who are playing on some of the other sites, let's say GG poker or party poker in um, competitive 20 PLO or 50 PLO pools. Um, the opportunity to try run it once profitably and see what playing on a site that I, and again, I'm, I'm not directly affiliated with them at all. This is really just purely my opinion, but a site that is just, it is good for the longevity of poker um, can do. And I think the more people who give that a chance and, and participate on there, the better. Yeah, that sounds awesome. And, and by the way, I don't know, we might need to cut out the exact numbers that you're quoting here, cut out in the YouTube version. I'm pretty sure we can leave everything as is sure. in, in the podcast version. But, you know, just in case, if, if guys, if you didn't hear the specific numbers for the deal, obviously go to Thalo Poker on Twitter or you can listen to this whole episode on any podcast platform where it's going to be unedited. Whereas on YouTube, we have to be careful with the policies of we're not allowed, like YouTube is not allowed to promote specific businesses, et cetera, et cetera. And the way they work they don't go into details. They just take the video off and we Better don't want that. Better safe than sorry. Yeah, exactly. So, and actually, another thing I want to add uh, to this discussion about uh, your staking thing, you also have some really high-profile people helping you with providing free coaching, which I found extremely interesting. And, uh, you know, I obviously work with Bluff the Spot and we also are looking in ways to help you and uh, potentially we're going to be doing some coaching for for the people who who end up being in your stable as well so it's sort of a, a weird way where a poker community community comes together with providing the opportunities for for the new players or for the p players who are otherwise struggling or you know for just anyone who wants to take their career from let's say low stakes to the next level yeah, that has been something that's really cool. Both um, you with um, your coaching, I guess we'll call it a company, coaching group, um, coaching team, um, to be able to, to, without ever thinking about anything like that going into this, the ability to, to potentially develop a partnership there for players who would never have access to that, to that level of coaching normally uh, is just, it is both exciting from a, a poker fan point of view. Um, and I, I, I'm sure extremely beneficial for the players in it. And then we have guys, as you mentioned, uh, that's something I'm working on, but who, who agree with the cause of the fact that run at once poker is simply good for the longevity and, and, and the health of online poker. And, um, I want to give credit to, um, apotheosis, who's, you know, one of, one of the legends of the, the MTT tournament scene and has been battling now recently in, in high stakes PLO and just 
one of the absolute all-time great poker players, saw what 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 I had put out there and said, "Hey, I, I'd like to contribute to this. Um, you know, can I can I offer coaching to a few players at the end of each month? Um, just donate my time. Uh, things like that are are really really awesome. Uh, you don't." There's not enough of those stories in the poker community, unfortunately. Yeah, uh, I, exactly. we've, as we've gone through, there's just a lot of darkness. Um, there's, yeah. there's a lot more about the shady, how much money can I extract side of the industry. So it is really cool when, when people come together to do the opposite. Mm. Yeah. And by the way, anybody listening who also wants to donate your time, I'm pretty sure Thalo would be pretty happy to get a message from you and go reach out. Absolutely. Please follow poker on Twitter. If you are interested in donating coaching to the stable, um, that would be phenomenal. You're going to have, you're going to have tough competition with, with Ron Chuck's group, obviously who we're, I, I floated. That's about the, the most excitement I've gotten from the group yet. When I, I floated a coaching partnership there, um, mm-hmm. especially because you guys do both, both no limit and PLO, which exactly, I think yeah. is a lot harder to find. Um, these days it is, I know some of the other staking groups that offer coaching are, are uh, very niche, right? It's either we're doing MTT coaching or we're doing no limit hold'em cash coaching at these stakes, et cetera. Um, so to, to have something that covers both, both the PLO and, and no limit is, is phenomenal. Um, and super useful for these guys. And yeah, we're really excited. Mm. Anyway, uh, I guess it's a good time to end this. Um, it, went from the sun is rising in vegas is it it is nice. i don't hear i don't know if we'll put this on stream but let me just oh look man at that. i love the vegas sunrise sunrise and sunset are just some of the most beautiful sky anywhere in the world the vegas cool. sky it's i don't know why is that but i always found it just incredible the colors are so special and especially when you see that backdrop of the mountains yep uh it's just so nice. There it is. Anyway, Thalo, listen, thank you so much for coming on the show, sharing some of some of the stories that not many people talk about. Uh, let's hope you don't get in trouble. <laughs> let's hope <laughs> I, I mean... don't get in trouble. And uh, let's hope that, you know, some of the things that we talked about, I'm pretty sure they're going to help um, quite a few people to understand the business that they're in a bit better. And, uh, and mind you, I think we both are on the same page that we are quite optimistic about the future of poker, but we know that there's a lot of bullshit going on right now and these things need help. to be addressed. Exactly. Yeah. So hopefully, you know, we help some people, well, at least we open some eyes to specific problems. Um, yeah, and I'm pretty sure that People also had some entertainment from some of the stories that uh, that you told, and I know that I will forever remember the image of a poker table where on the felt there's a face of a guy. I mean, you that's, know what? I'll, I'll, I will send you that picture because uh, oh, I, I have it. That. So, so you, you can you don't even have to. Yeah, you you can just have the image if you'd like. It is. Oh, absolutely. It was a sight to see. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, that's that's something I've never heard about before and uh and i just wonder like what kind of person would put their own face on a felt (laughs) (laughs) a confident person a a confident but very confident person yeah yes but um i mean that's you don't win 
MVP awards and all the trophies by being... Uh, That's right. And by being a silent kid, you know? There's a certain... I think there's a certain level that once you hit that level, you're allowed to be, you know, the showmanship is tolerable. And yeah. um, he probably, he hit that level. So mm. we're just, we're all along for the ride and, and get to to witness it. Yeah. Yeah, that's the thing. There is a level. There is a level at which... You know, you put your face on the felt and it's just not cool. And then, you know, you're slightly above that level and it's like, wow, that's that's pretty sweet. It's right. weird, but it's it's nice. <laughs> I mean, if it's a thing that could be earned, I would say he's earned it. Yeah. <laughs> okay. That's awesome. Anyway, Thalo, thanks so much. Um, I'll put all of the links, everything, uh, how pe- people can find you, etc. in the show notes. So... You guys can look it up and um, thank you and enjoy your morning. Fantastic. Thank you for having me on. I, I really appreciate it. It was, it was genuinely a pleasure. I, I think, um, you know, even without the podcast, it would be fun to just talk about a lot of this stuff. So um, yeah, it was, it's good conversation. I, I enjoyed it a lot and I hope that, that it does open some eyes to those who need their eyes open, as you mentioned. Mm. Awesome. Well, bye. Thank you for listening. I hope you enjoyed this episode. If you'd like to get a regular email from me personally where I share my key takeaways from each latest episode, go to runchexpodcast.com and subscribe to my newsletter. And of course, I would really appreciate if you subscribe to my channel on YouTube and rate my podcast on iTunes, Spotify, or any other platform where you normally listen to your podcasts. This really helps.